we see in the night sky, it was, uh, there were no clouds, which is all the stars, we see a really bright light appearing. It was almost the same appearance as one of those falling lights I've seen before. It's like, it looks like a very bright planet, uh, as I said before, you know, like Mars or, or Venus, you sometimes see in the sky. But in this case, the light appeared, it moved, disappeared, uh, reappeared again a little bit further down towards the east. This happened about four times. It made a, a stuttering motion, like it was, uh, the engine was cranking up and it was making four times a stuttering appearing a reappearing motion and all of a sudden it disappeared again it reappeared quite a bit further and it just shut off christian thank you for joining me on the podcast well thanks for having me it's an honor I will let you introduce yourself and say your full name because I don't want to butcher the shit out of it because <laughs> I know I will. I don't, <laughs> I don't blame you. I'm uh, Christian, Christian van Heist. I'm a Dutch uh, airline pilot. I'm now 39 years old. Uh, I've been flying for 20 years now. Uh, started uh, general aviation, built my way up to uh, bigger and uh, nicer airplanes. And parallel to flying, I've been uh, carrying a camera with me and uh, basically trying to document uh, all the beautiful things that I've been seeing from the from the cockpits all the time. And this uh, basically grew into a parallel career that I'm uh, that I'm enjoying uh, right now. So I'm a I'm a flying Dutchman with a camera in his hand. <laughs> are you are you based out of the Netherlands? Are you based in Amsterdam? Well, I used to be flying for a Dutch company, but right now I'm flying for a Belgian company, which is about two hours drive uh, from uh, from where I live. So it's uh, it's relatively close by, but every, everything in Europe is is relatively close by. Yeah, so I, I was actually going to say I I lived in Maastricht in the Netherlands for about five weeks a couple years ago because my girlfriend was going to school there. She was finishing her degree, and so I actually had a chance to you know zoom around the the Netherlands for a little bit. But we were based in Maastricht, and it was it was beautiful. Like you know, I, I had a great time just working there, exploring beautiful country. Nice. Very flat. Very, very flat. Very flat. <laughs> Actually, with the exception of Maastricht, because that's in the, in the in the most southern tip of the Netherlands, which is already kind of hilly, and it's it's a beautiful city as well. Nice to hear. Yeah, the the hills in the Netherlands though are like it feels like you're still walking flat like it, it, you, people told me that like oh this is actually the the hilliest part of the netherlands or one of the most and i'm like really it, it and you just look out and you see hills that like barely go up and down and there there are some decent hikes around there but it, but it was a good time <laughs> definitely yeah and i guess that's also the reason why the netherlands uh there's so many bikes here because uh, if we if we get on the bike, you don't have to climb up all the hills all the time. So uh, I guess that that's uh, that's the reason for it. Yeah, it's something I notice is that in the Netherlands, the the bike lanes are massive compared to New York. If you're if you're biking in New York, you you essentially get a sliver on the side of the road with cars and taxis zooming by that don't give a shit about you, and you're uh, it's it's like this crazy merging of bikes and cars all the time and the bikes don't really follow the laws but like the cars also are just skip the stop signs and, and like it, it just becomes like this whole mishmash and then when i went to uh maastricht i was just amazed at how much the drivers respected the bikers and the bikers respected drivers and, and people respected traffic laws in general like i, I would be waiting at a stoplight at 
630 in the morning, just crossing the street like it's red, but I'm crossing the street anyway because no one's coming. But like people will actually wait for it to turn in an empty street to cross the street. And and like I was just amazed at the like the cleanliness and the the organization of the the traffic there yeah in general it's it's kind of uh, organized and uh, and uh, high level discipline but if you go to a city like amsterdam then <laughs> i guess it's, it's oh yeah the opposite yeah yeah Am- amsterdam was the opposite maastricht was you know if you it, I, I felt like i was an outcast crossing the street if the light wasn't you know they that white man on the the sign telling you to cross yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I, I guess I yeah. guess that's typical for the for the Dutch attitude. Everything is organized, everything is arranged. Basically, the whole country is is landscaped uh, from uh, from a swamp, so they had to organize everything. And I think this this molded the mentality of the the Dutch people. Yeah. What what if we just spoke for the next three hours about Dutch traffic and the the landscape of? Uh, I just tricked you into doing a. Uh, uh, like a city planning podcast on on the Netherlands for three hours. <laughs> it's it's very probably exciting. One of, <laughs> probably one of the topics I have absolutely no no uh, no knowledge about. But yeah, <laughs> we can see yeah. it fill three hours. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I think I think we'd run out after about. I I'd run out within the next minute or so. But I, I I wanted to actually start with an excerpt from one of your blog posts and the. The name of the the post is escaping me, but it was about flying over the Pacific. You had written about the the vastness of doing a a Pacific flyover, and I wanted to to read something from that and just get your thoughts on it. So, and and people can go check out the full articles on your website as well. Very very interesting blog, and you you obviously have all the photos that we're gonna get into with the uh, the unidentified versus explainable phenomenon. And so, uh, I'm gonna link your website wherever people are listening to or watching this so you can definitely go check it out cool and yeah so so you write i often look down and gaze at the dark blue surface the same body of water without apparent change for over 10 hours straight ten thousand kilometers of absolutely nothing but an alien abyss i catch myself checking the engine instruments and rerunning my fuel calculations more often than needed this is not a region where i want to put my life vest to the test Far above, another type of immeasurable death is laid out. Immeasurable death, excuse me. A possibly infinite void filled with trillions of ancient stars, galaxies, and worlds. And I'm reading this and I'm like trying to picture what that must feel like to be a pilot having that view with the open window in front of you, getting to just stare up or down at that for thousands of hours because I'm just used to you know you pull down the the window maybe it's like half open but the 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 cabin is lit up so you can't really see that well anyway sometimes you can but like in those moments where you have that unobstructed view of the abyss below the heavens above you where does your mind go like what do you think about like because to me that's just mind-blowing to to have that view constantly yeah. Also, from the cockpit, we have the benefit of having these really big windows basically all around us. So the view we have is is much better compared to what you can see as a passenger from the little cabin window. Um, in general, uh, of course, you know, if you have a flight of ten hours, it's not that I'm staring out of the window for ten hours straight. Uh, I, sometimes, you know, I just look out of the window for an hour and then I 
do some administration or do some other paperwork, etc. But those moments, especially if you fly with a colleague who's, who's appreciating those kind of views as well, uh, are, are really amazing. And often uh, I, I dim all the cockpit lights to a minimum. And then especially at night, if there's no moon, you can see so many stars. It's just unbelievable. The, the vastness of uh, of the night sky, especially if there's no light pollution, it's just amazing. And if I have the chance, I just uh, lean over the instrument panel and just press my face against the window. And it's just unbelievable what you what you can see. And uh, most of these blog posts, I write them when I'm home. So when I'm flying, I have no creativity. I just soak in all the, all the uh, experiences and the views. And uh, I let it brew for a while. And then later on at home, I just uh, put it into words and, and pictures. But those moments are just... Uh, serene it's just beautiful and then you're sitting there especially uh, flying over over the ocean it's just pure blackness below and it's just different kind of blackness above with all the stars and that's something really profound and especially if there's no other reference so there's no other airplanes or there are no clouds around it feels like you're just suspended in midair and you're just gazing out over over a void and that's uh, it's mind-blowing i must say some some of my colleagues, I know they uh, they don't like it. They they prefer to fly with the lights on and not stare into the abyss. <laughs> uh, personally, I I, uh, I find it beautiful. I find it peaceful, and I uh, I, I I just enjoy it. It gives me uh, peace of mind, complete peace of mind, and that's one of the things that I really like about flying because we don't have Wi-Fi on board, you don't have uh, uh, data roaming, whatever. So you're completely disconnected from the world, disconnected from agendas, disconnected from people who who send me emails mm. or whatever. And especially if you're disconnected from the earth and flying over such a remote area, it just adds to the, yeah. to the peaceful uh, feeling you have there, at least for me personally. So are, have you ever been flying with someone and you turn the lights off in the cockpit and the other pilot goes, turn that shit back on? Like, I, I don't, I, I can't handle this right now. <laughs> Well, many times also, yes, uh, yeah. uh, many, many of my colleagues, uh, they don't even appreciate the beauty that we see from above. So, and that's, that's not a negative thing. It's just, uh, uh, I mean, there's so many individual people with so many individual preferences, but many of my colleagues, they don't even see the beauty that I try to capture with my camera or, or, or that, that I enjoy uh, looking at. So for many colleagues, they just put the lights on and just read a magazine and they don't even look out of the window. The cool thing is, uh, now I'm captain, uh, and my co-pilots, they just, <laughs> they just have to endure it if I switch the lights off because, uh, uh, yeah, that's that's the benefit of, uh, of being the captain uh, in the cockpit. I basically decide how I want to have the lighting done and if I want to dim the lights. But most of the colleagues, by now, they know me. Uh, they know I'm a photographer, and they know I, I enjoy these views. So there's not even any discussion anymore. But especially when I was still flying as a co-pilot, it happened quite often that uh, the captain just switched on the lights just a, a flop light just to uh, to, to basically <laughs> um, flood the cockpit with all the bright lights and not look out of the window. And that's really, uh, really painful sometimes, especially if there's bright northern lights everywhere or uh, mm. when you're flying through a meteor storm. It's just beautiful to capture it. But some of the colleagues in the past, they, they couldn't care less. So they just put the lights on and that's it. So, yeah, <laughs> that's part of part of Yeah, life, I, I, I can imagine both ways because to to have that ability to look out of the cockpit and see things like the northern lights or even if it's just the the normal darkness the normal abyss or sunrise sunset something like that to have that available and to not want to look at that and appreciate that seems insane on the other hand i have been in situations where i'm in 
almost total darkness. I, I've I went caving once and, you know, we shut off our headlamps and we we're like, all right, we're going to just sit here for two minutes and sit in total darkness. And the first 30 seconds was really fucking weird and I started to get anxious. But then after that, once my eyes adjusted and it's kind of like, okay, it's dark. It, it was actually kind of cool. Like I, I'd never sat in, in complete darkness before. I know, I know the cockpit isn't, isn't like that because you obviously have lights and you need to see things, but just having that dark expanse in front of you, I imagine can be, you know, extremely stimulating one way or the other anxiety or beauty appreciation awesomeness definitely and it's also uh, i think one of the reasons why i wanted to become a pilot uh, when i was very young because i was just so so uh so impressed with all the beautiful views and and just just looking at the world from from literally a perspective from above or from a unique perspective and that's something that's uh, yeah that's even uh uh, amplified if you're flying at night, and especially with uh, with the lights off, it just uh, yeah, it's 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 just it's just mind blowing, really beautiful. So and also, yeah, it's, I, th- I think this is also the main motivation why I started to take pictures uh, from a young age because I was just so so um, taken away by these by these perspectives and knowing it's 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 unique. We're the, we're, we're the second or the third generation of human beings who can actually see the world from that perspective. So mm. when I'm flying, I want to document it, and especially knowing that there are just uh, only uh, well, let's say there are not too many pilots who. Would really appreciate the almost poetic beauty of of, of, of flight, and uh, well, I'm I'm in the lucky position that I'm uh, I'm able to carry a camera with me and, and and document it. So it's it's a couple of factors coming together, and that resulted in me basically yeah just enjo- enjoying the views even even more. Yeah. So before you ever had the inkling to become a professional pilot, do you remember the first feeling you got where you thought flying could be not, not not even just a career like where you felt the pull towards flying and, and it was something that you wanted to do something that you could see yourself spending a lot of time doing whether you were getting you know paid to do it or not yeah definitely and it was uh, it's actually one of the first memories i have as a as a small child uh, I, I think i was two or two and a half years old and i flew uh, together with my mom to the united states in a 747-200, I, I still remember so many details. And I was sitting next to the window, and I was just glued to the window, just, just, just uh, amazed by the by the views of Greenland, of the clouds, and the whole sensation of being in the air and, and flying, and 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 the whole technology of of, uh, of a big jet airliner were just uh, so impressive to me. Uh, later on, I mm. flew again when I was I was uh, four years old. So it's it's really in the forming years of my life, and it was the same experience again. I was just completely taken away by the views and by the sensation of flight, and I think that really planted the seed in my uh, in my in my young brain. <laughs> yeah. So, so when did you did you go into aviation as a you know? A- teenager as a student did, did you were you set on that track or were you doing something else first and then you went back to flying well funny enough the the, the need to become a, a pilot actually only grew much later it was only after i was i turned 14 uh, i still remember i was walking from the high school to the train station to go home and from one moment to another it just hit me like like uh, like a lightning strike and I decided, you know what, I'm going to be a pilot. And this is really something that came out of nowhere. But I just, uh, I just, 
I, I, I made a decision for myself there. And the funny thing is that after that moment, uh, my grades went up as well, because all of a sudden, it was literally from one day to another, I had the motivation to study, I had the motivation to get my papers. And uh, from there on, I just focused everything in my life to become a pilot. I started taking uh, flying lessons on a glider airplane, and soon just progressed through um, uh, motorized flying. So funny enough, the, the, the fascination with flights and aviation started when I was really young, but the, 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 the decision to actually become a pilot started when I was 14 years old. And from there on, it went, it went really fast. Wow. So, so it was an instant spark of inspiration while you were walking, just out of nowhere, just hits you. I'm going to be a pilot. And then from that moment, like you just, you turned it on. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I've still, I'm still wondering what what caused this uh, this, this this thought or this uh, this realization. But uh, it it really it really brought me where I am today. So uh, I guess sometimes things happen in life that we don't have an explanation for, but uh, it happens for the for the right reasons. I guess. Yeah, yeah, that that's amazing. I I've heard people in various careers that talk about a sort of instant spark of this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I had a much different experience with production and, and podcasting. I almost started doing it by accident. And then over the course of a few months, I started to realize how much I enjoyed it and had this gradual, you know, awakening sounds like a cheesy thing to say, but just a, a feeling that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But I've, I've spoken to a few other people who have also had that sort of like instant they're walking down the street they're on the treadmill you know usually walking is involved so maybe there's something that has to do with putting your body in motion and then, then they're just like all right like this is like i'm walking out the door of this gym or i'm walking off this train and this is what i'm doing for the rest of my life interesting yeah it's uh it, it reminds me of some moments uh, that i have now and then when i have a, uh, a surge of creativity uh, it might be related that something from the subconscious mind it's it's coming to the surface all of a sudden uh, but sometimes i'm 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 driving a car or i'm i'm, I'm sitting on a couch or whatever and i have this 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 urge to start writing or i i finally have a uh, almost a breakthrough in how i want to structure a new blog but sometimes i just write some 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 narratives and they don't really fit together and then all of a sudden i literally feel an itch here on this side of my <laughs> my brain and have to run to the computer because i realized that this is like a, a creative breakthrough that i really wow. want to use and actually in retrospect uh this might be the same um the same um subconscious process that's happening when i uh, let's say when, when i was 14 years old when i had the urge to become a pilot it's not really comparable because the creative creative part is kind of different than choosing a career but i think it's uh, yeah it, it, it might be related yeah there are people that think and i have thought this way more and more as i'm i'm thinking about creativity and ideas how people get in touch with action uh like actionizing their creative ideas and, and making something out of it there there are people that think that we're all just vessels for making things and that there are ideas floating around in the universe you know it's forms of waves or things that we don't yet understand and the people that are most open to receiving these sorts of ideas and information are the ones who end up creating it and that there are many vessels for different sorts of ideas that maybe other people with the same skills aren't as open to 
and for whatever reason the ideas align with the person that person manifests it and it comes out into the world so it's not like we're internally generating our own ideas but like they're all just bouncing around out there and then if you're open to it your mind is clear you sort of start to get in tune with that idea and you have a moment where it hits you and you're like holy shit i need to draw this thing i need to take this photo i need to record this podcast whatever it is and and the more that i think about creativity the more that i think along those lines because like the, the i i have no idea where ideas come from like i like to think that i'm good enough to make them up or i'm good enough to make all these split second decisions during podcasts which direction do i go a question do i ask whatever but it just appears and there's no like i don't like i'm not like thinking really hard like i'm constipated i'm like all right i'm gonna ask like this question and like it, it just like pops into my head for whatever reason so yeah i i don't know i i i think there's something to that like us being vessels for ideas that are kind of just floating around interesting it's uh it's closely connected to intuition as well and it can be uh like you say when when, when you when you try to direct a podcast or a, a conversation could be uh, related to creative ideas, but also musicians, for example, or even uh, mathematicians. They often talk when they when they have a breakthrough. Or sorry, they often say that if they have the breakthrough or if they have a, a eureka moment, it just comes out of nowhere. And I think creativity and intuition are are really closely connected. For example, most of the the, the blogs, most of the narratives I write, um, they just dry themselves it's really kind of scary sometimes because um I, I don't know if you've seen but i'm actually pretty active on, on social media so for example if i have an instagram post i write uh, a small narrative that comes together with a picture to basically give it some depth and often um i just open up my uh, my my laptop and i put one one of the pictures i want to write about on the right hand side of the screen and i open up the the word file on the uh, the, the writing file on the other side and I just write, and it just comes. And sometimes I even don't even know where it's coming from because I'm, uh, as you know, as you realize and notice, I'm not a native English speaker. I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm Dutch, so English is a second language for me. But the writing in English uh, it comes much, much more natural than my writing in Dutch. And sometimes I'm even writing sentences with words that I'm not sure what they mean. I have to look them up and say, okay, yeah, actually it makes sense. And uh, I've been thinking about yeah. it very long and I was wondering, you know, it might be uh, like you say that it's, it's, this is almost like a spiritual or mystical um, 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 appearance of, 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 of creative stuff. On the other hand, it could be a subconscious process as well. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm reading a lot, so I'm reading a lot of uh, uh, books. And it could be that some some structures in sentences are just buried really deep down in my subconscious and they're coming to the surface the moment I'm writing. Then again, um, uh, I think it was Vangelis, the musician, who had his own philosophy about uh, music. And he said he was just a conduit for for um, uh, music that's floating in the, let's say, in the, in the universe. I don't know what to think about it. It's kind of uh, uh, too too mystical for me. But I, I know that a lot of musicians and a lot of creative artists they feel that they're just a conduit for something uh, something else. So just an instrument instead of the creator. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is, it is an odd and glorious feeling, especially when writing. Because I, I write out a lot of ideas for the podcast, and often I'll like just do stream of thought and, and cut it down or even just write some blog posts here and there. But like you can feel it when you're writing and the ideas are coming instantly. Cause for me, I don't know about you, but it, most of the time I end up writing something shit 
and then out of that shit will come like a, something that's better. But I'll start out. I'm. I just tell myself I'm gonna write anything right now in the next thirty minutes, and whatever comes out comes out. And I'll if it's shitty, that's fine. But then there are other times where as soon as my hands hit the keyboard, this something comes out that ends up being close to the final product and I have no idea why it's that way sometimes and then other times it's like well this I'm just doing this to get through the shitty part until I get to something good yeah definitely I have exactly the same and sometimes I'm writing uh, a really long piece uh, actually I'm, I'm limited by the character limit on, on Instagram which is I think 2200 uh, characters so I really have to turn down the, the, the narrative sometimes I just write a long piece and then I have to delete half of it other times like you say the, f- the first version is just perfect as it is and that's uh, that's really funny to see and as mm. I said before I, it was I think it was last year um, I have no clue why but I was I was writing two two parts of the the blog one was about uh, uh, I think it was the Second World War, and the lower part was what I was seeing right there at that moment in the picture. And I had these two um, uh, basically captions next to each other, and I wanted to use them for the same picture. And I was really wondering, why did I write this? Because there's no way I can connect these two. It it doesn't make any sense. So I left it there, and after about a month, I was reading it again. And I think I was busy cooking or, or walking. And then all of a sudden, it hit me like that. I realized, well, if I add this little sentence in between... It connects these two uh, perfectly, and I, I, that's what I did. I wrote it down, I posted it, and it was received really well yeah. by a lot of followers. And I'm, that really made me wonder: Did the structure already exist, but I only realized later how to connect them, or is it is it maybe something else? It's it's really it's really intriguing. Yeah. So so once you had that that moment of inspiration, I assume you go to you're going to school at that point because what that was what year did you have that spark where you you were like this is gonna this is gonna be it the the flying career you mean yeah the flying career yeah so i was 14 so that must have been uh let me think uh uh, 1997 okay so 14 years old you have that lightning bolt of inspiration what do you do after that do you just immediately start looking for flight schools well, basically, I, I'm coming from a family that has no ties in aviation whatsoever. So I was completely clueless. I, I didn't know any pilots. I never seen a pilot in real life. So um, I just started uh, calling flight schools. This was pre-internet era, of course. So I got a lot of folders from flight schools, and I realized, you know, if I really want to become a pilot, I have to uh, have at least this uh, uh, level of, uh, of education. Mm. I have to do this. I have to do that. And um, um, actually, my uncle, he was really happy to see that I was so motivated. He said, you know what, uh, it was, uh, I think it was uh, a summer holiday. He said, you know what, let's go to the airport and, uh, and get you in a glider and, and see if you actually like flying. And the moment I was flying there, of course, I had, a, had some experience with Microsoft Flight Simulator, just uh, the, the basics of flight. So I knew how the controls were working. So I, at least I knew the basics. And uh, this flight instructor, he was sitting behind me. And, and I have to imagine I'm 14 years old and just flying a glider. Um, yeah. And he said, he, he actually said he was kind of impressed that I had some uh, motivation. Wow. Uh, sorry, that I had some uh, some talent. And I think this was exactly the right nudge that I needed to take it even to the next level. So I started looking into taking uh, flying lessons. And yeah, then once you're uh, with one foot in this little world of aviation, you get to know people, you get to uh, know how the, how the how the whole industry is working, etc. And I just took it basically from there step by step so uh it was first the the, 
the lightning bolt of inspiration to become a pilot. And then the first time I was flying an airplane that this instructor was actually telling me that I, at least in, in his eyes, I had some talent, which was exactly the right, the right boost that I needed. So um, it's it, in retrospect, it's funny to see how uh, little moments, little sometimes insignificant moments can really push you into uh, into the right direction. Yeah. So, so the, the glider, is that a propeller plane or what is a, cause I'm picturing it in my head. I just want to make sure I have the right thing in mind. Uh, the gliders, uh, they're, they're really, uh, uh, unpowered airplanes. So with, a uh, with a cable, they basically pull it up into the air. Uh, let's say at uh, 300 meters, uh, I guess less, uh, two, 300 meters. So that's, uh, let's say around uh, a thousand feet. They disconnect the cable. Uh, you can just uh, glide your way down. And sometimes you can pick up some thermals. So it's like rising hot air. And if you do it correctly, the glider can actually fly for hours and hours. Uh, but this is the, wow. the, 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 um, this is the level of aviation that most of the pilots actually start in because it's affordable. It's it's much less expensive than motorized flying. So and it's very basic. So you really have to. I know you don't have to, but you you really get used to to the sensation of flying, and you you really um, uh, learn the basics of flying really well. So glider flying is the is the, is the first step that many pilots take. Was there a feeling or a sensation that surprised you the most about flying a plane the first time? Like something you know, that any simulator can't teach you something where you were like, holy shit, like I, I did not expect this at all. <laughs> the noise. <laughs> it's uh, actually the noise. The glider, yeah, the glider, uh, uh, these gliders are very noisy. That's something that really surprised me. Um, but what really uh, stuck with me is that I really felt at home. I thought, you know, okay, this is it. I'm just, I'm just in love with flying, and uh, I, I felt so sorry when we had to uh, land again. But just the sensation of being up there, and then finally, actually, with me behind the controls, it was like uh, coming home. It, it just felt so natural. So, yeah, that was the, the the right push for me. And I could go do this right now without a license. I I could go to an airport where they have gliders and just go up like that and and fly it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and many uh, many flight schools they offer some um, uh, introduction lessons, even on a small Cessna with, the, let's say, uh, uh, a piston engine. You can just take a flying lesson and see and see if you like it. So I started with mm. glider flying because uh, this was the easiest option for me as a as a fourteen year old. Uh, but many people they just take flying lessons, and you can just start with a with a small propeller airplane and and see if you like it. So the instructor will sit next to you. Of course, they will give you a small briefing explaining what the what the what the steering wheel is doing and, and uh, what not to do especially you know what not to do uh, but then you just fly for an hour and, and and have some fun and for many people this is the first step into uh either choosing a career in aviation or deciding if they want to get their pilot license mm. uh, eventually what what was your first job in flying um, actually, after I finished my uh, my flight training, it was uh, in 2003, if I'm not mistaken, and the whole market was completely, uh, uh, yeah, uh, there, there were basically no no jobs for any pilots. Sat so saturated, had, yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, no no airline was hiring. So for almost a year, I uh, I worked at a small flying school. Uh, and basically we were renting out airplanes and giving some introduction lessons. So once in a while I did some sightseeing flights, but most of the time I was just cleaning the hangar and, and doing all the administrative work, uh, just hoping, hoping for an invitation by a big airline. And almost after, I guess, a year, I got my first invitation by, uh, by a small Dutch airline if I wanted to come and, uh, uh, yeah, uh, apply with them. So it, it was, 
Uh, it was a long, long road uh, until I had my first uh, real job in aviation. But uh, it's in, in retrospect, it was kind of good because it's uh, I'm kind of proud how I built it up from literally from scratch to cleaning aircraft hangars and cleaning the uh, the airplanes uh, to yeah to 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 building my way up to. Uh, to, to commercial flying. And with the, the Dutch airline, with that first job, were you flying around Europe or wh- where were you, wh- where was your area mostly? It's, uh, it's, it's kind of complicated. This is first airline I'm flying for, I used to fly for, uh, they were specialized in ACMI operations. And that means they are leasing out their airplanes, including crew to other airlines. So they didn't have their own routes, but they were basically just uh, flying for, for other companies. So I was trained on the uh, on the turboprop as a co-pilot. It was the Fokker 50 uh, F50 turboprop. And I know how- Fokker the, the 50. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know how- I like the, it. How, yeah, I know how the, how the name Fokker sounds in uh, in the English language, and you, you you can imagine all the jokes, especially since it was a very slow airplane. So all the pilots making fun of the slow Fokker. But oh, uh, yeah. anyway, I, <laughs> I, I was I was flying the F fifty as a as a co pilot, and we had multiple contracts. We were flying for I think five or six different European airlines, flying in Greece, in Scandinavia, flying for KLM as well, uh, all over Europe. And uh, eventually, the company also got contracts for African airlines and military contract work in Afghanistan and that was that was really something else because uh, first of all you know I, I was still inexperienced I'm still uh, getting the hang of it of, of, of flying commercially with all the pressure and and it, even the uh, Fokker 50 is a, is a rather small airplane it's still kind of complicated and complex so I was I was still uh, getting used to to flying uh, commercially and then you're being sent to Africa and fly there. And that was really like I was being thrown in the deep end of the, of the swimming pool. But um, it was it was amazing. It was really cool. And especially um, flying the operations in Africa and Afghanistan, it was like Indiana Jones movie, but uh, on steroids. It was it was it was amazing. Yeah. What? So do you have any stories that stand out from that time? We'll talk about Africa first, but I've you know, I. I know that the infrastructure in Africa is not the greatest, so I imagine flying there comes with a lot of, you know, improvisation and adventure going around to different places. Can you tell a story about that time and kind of talk about that time where you were flying over Africa? <laughs> I can I can probably write whole books about what happened there. It's uh, every day was an adventure and we were based, um, oh, actually I was flying for a couple of different companies, some of them Saharan and some of them Sub-Saharan. So that means basically we did flights uh, out of the capital, one of those countries all over the Sahara, uh, picking up people there and dropping up, dropping them off there. Uh, but also the sub-Saharan uh, companies, uh, for, for example, in, in Nigeria or these kind of uh, operations and countries were completely different. But to give you an example, once uh, one day we were flying in this African uh, company, in the Saharan company, and we were just ready for a whole flight, a whole day of flying, six six flights all over the country and coming back to the capital at the end of the day. And all of a sudden, the, one of the handling agents, he comes to the cockpit and he gives us a little note just on a piece of paper with a gps coordinates he said oh you have to go here it's a change in the schedule you have to go here so just a we piece of paper at, that's it and I we get, were wondering yeah there's is, is there an airport and what do you what do you want us to do there so well, yeah just go there you can land there I, okay well the fokker 50 is kind of a versatile airplane but uh, you cannot just land it so uh, randomly anywhere so in the end you know we just took enough fuel if there's nothing there we just go back to the capital and uh, we just we just 
have a look and see what's there. So after about two hours of flying, we just descended uh, towards the point that we uh, entered in the, uh, in the navigation computer. And there seemed to be something like uh, a gravel runway, but it was it was a makeshift airport. So we made a couple of flybys just to chase off all the animals and people. And uh, eventually we, we landed there. We shut down the engines. And sure enough, there was a, a small pickup truck just uh, uh, leaving a huge uh, uh, dust trail um, driving up to the airport. And apparently there were passengers that were waiting for us to arrive. And uh, we, we loaded those passengers in and we went back to the uh, to the other airports. It was just one of those one of those improvisation moments that you realize that, that flying there is or oh, actually life in Africa. It's just completely different to compared to to. Yeah, so let's say uh, Europe or, or the United States. And uh, one other time we were flying uh, also in one of these uh, uh, Saharan countries and we flew to a small airport that we finally found and we landed there and the local, let's say, handling agent or the local uh, uh, travel agency, I think this guy sold maybe 300 tickets for our airplane and we only have 50 seats in the airplane because it's, it's such a really uh, such, yeah. a, such a small airplane just, just to, slightly oversold yeah and just of sl- only by was, 250 people and you have to imagine i mean there's no terminal there there's no security there's, there's nothing people just rush and run to the air uh, to the uh, uh to, to the airplane and they were literally fighting to get on board and at one point i think you know people were just crawling all over each other in the cabin and we, we were just sitting there because there was no security agent there was no there was nothing uh, what do you do? You, you just have to improvise and, and go with the flow. So these are just two small examples of, of how flying is is really different. It's completely different. It's a mindset that's different. Um, it's it's uh, yeah, it's 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 quite something. It's quite something. Yeah, when I'm flying out of airports in America and Europe, I wish I could just bum rush the gate and be the first one to get on the plane. So, so it's good. So it's good to know that there are countries out there that have that policy, like first come, first serve. If, if you can get on the plane before the doors close, it's yours. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah. It was it was it was quite something. Uh, but a couple of times also when we were flying in those countries, uh, most of the airlines they are the the only. Uh, method of transportation for the country because the infrastructure is just not there. So many times we had a couple of flights and this flight schedule, uh, the published flight schedule is more like suggestion than an actual timetable. So we just leave whenever there's fuel and when the passengers are ready. And quite often there was like the local minister or the local president, he uh, wanted to visit this little town as well. So the president or the, the prime minister, he was just jumping up the airplane and um, kicking off some some passengers and basically we landed somewhere and we had about 30 minutes on the ground and after 30 minutes we had to leave again because we had a time schedule and all the the rest of the passengers were waiting so apparently the president of this little country he got out and there was a whole ceremony children dancing for this president and it was like uh, a big ceremony with uh, uh with welcoming this president and after 45 minutes we were wondering you know how, how long is this going to take because we have to leave again and the passengers in the back of the airplane they were they were almost revolting they said oh yeah to, I have to make my connecting flight here and there and all of a sudden you know you try to suggest maybe to the security detail the president like well, uh, really nice that you have this uh, this ceremony but we have to start moving again but you have to realize in some of those countries having um let's say uh, criticism on the president uh, is, is not really appreciated. So a couple of times the security agents around the president, which are, they were getting really aggressive with us and, and arming the, the, uh, their AK-47s at us saying, well, this is the president. You have no, no, <laughs> no influence on his schedule. So we were just, uh, yeah. uh, just completely stuck between a rock and a hard place because the passengers were revolting and the security uh, the detail of the president was not allowing us to do anything there. So it's, it's, it's an absurd situation. And all 
only afterwards that you realize, well, it's actually kind of special that that, that you um, experience these things as a, as, as a European pilot. Because as I said, you know, um, this only happens in Africa, and there are only so many pilots flying for African airlines. So this was really this was really something. But it's just the tip of the iceberg. I could I could talk for hours about just flying in Africa. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't I can't even imagine just. Because in America, you would never have a, a high-level politician mixing with uh, just like normal people like myself on a flight. If I like, if I look to my right and Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Biden, whoever was just like sitting there, I'd be like, "What the hell is going on? Like, our, our country is screwed. Did we lose the money to fund the Air Force One? What is what's happened? Like, that would be such a or like it would be cool, but it would be so." weird to see such a, a high level guy just sitting there on the plane with you know us uh us peasants yeah definitely and it's uh you know it's, it's one thing if there's just a, a high high level politician flying with you but especially in africa some of these countries where we were flying were really politically unstable so one day the guy is a president and everybody loves him and the next day um uh, they're trying to kill him because he basically uh, uh was uh how do you say this he was uh, uh taken off the throne by the by a military coup or something so okay yeah so, cool uh, yeah exactly so a couple of times we had it that uh after returning after a full day of flying we returned to the capital of the country and we found out in the hotel that there was a military coup in the in the country and that the president was trying to flee and then you realize, well, the guy that we carry tomorrow with, with all the suitcases and security detail, uh, wearing a, a sporty uh, sunglasses, etc., that's probably one of the presidents or the one of the uh, one of the uh, high-level politicians that they're looking for. So all of a sudden, it's not just a funny um, experience to have have one of these politicians with you, but there's a big security risk as well. No, it it, it, it wouldn't be the first time if the military is shooting down airplanes with uh, with presidents that are fleeing the country. So this is also one of the instances uh, where we realize that flying in Africa can be a lot of fun, can be a really interesting adventure, but it can be very unpredictable as well. And that's something um, that you only realize if you're if you're really exposed to, to, to those kind of situations. Did you have any close calls where you thought there would be a serious threat to a terrorist coming on the plane or, or someone trying to take out a high-level politician blowing up the plane, whatever, while you were flying? <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I have to be a bit careful, uh, but actually it was one of those situations where we found out that there was a military coup. Uh, the next day we had a, a charter flight out of the country, and the moment we um, we saw the passenger arriving, we realized that it was the ex-president that was trying to flee the country. And uh, most of those uh, African countries, they basically um, they, there's hardly any traffic flying there. So we were taking off, and because we were, we flew that route quite often before, and uh, the tower would just say, you know what, make a left turn and fly direct to whatever you want. Just just fuck off. But in this case, uh, the air traffic controller gave us very clear directions to fly. Um, uh, in uh, they say this uh, they basically make, make another turn and fly to a position really far deep into the Sahara before we could actually turn south towards the other country. And my captain, yeah, I, like a we stopover. Uh, well, Stop. not really a stopover, but he gave us a very uh, uncommon uh, departure. Oh, route, odd route. Uh, okay. Toward, yeah. 
so my captain and I we were looking at each other, and my captain said, "I'm not going to do that." And he said, "Just just say uh, uh, okay that you will uh, that, that you acknowledge the uh, departure route because I was doing the radio and my captain was flying." And basically, he took off and he just switched off the lights, the, the landing lights, and we we turned uh, over the sea. We first flew about 100 miles over the sea before we went south. And later on, my captain explains. He said, "Well, <laughs> there's a big chance that they know we have the president on board, and I don't want to run the risk of being shut down." And uh, the fact that we got this really strange clearance to fly over a really remote area over the Sahara. Um, and the fact that we had this ex-president on board and uh, the whole situation was really tense and really strange. And it's only in retrospect that you realize, wow, this is, this is, uh, this is, this is something else. Um, and of course, nothing happened in the end, but you don't want to run the risk. And it wouldn't be the first time, in, especially in those kind of unstable countries where uh, private uh, jets or, or airplanes with, with former presidents are, uh, are targeted so um in the end nobody shot at uh, shot at us but uh, it could have ended completely differently and there's no way of knowing what would have happened if we if we took the actual departure clearance but yeah <laughs> that's how it is yeah there's there's one story that i, I want to ask you about because i this is a, the other blog post that i read and I'm assuming this aligns with the same time you're flying over Africa because it takes place there. You, you wrote a blog called A Very Close Call Over the Sahara. For people listening and, and for myself, too, because reading it probably doesn't do the experience justice. But like in your in your words now, like what what was that close call? Because it, it, it seems like too close to to be true. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I know which uh, which blog post you're referring to. This was this was a really close call, unintentionally. Uh, it was uh, at night. We were flying also with the F-15 turboprop, uh, flying back from one of those, uh, let's say, outstations back to the capital of this uh, of this uh, uh, Saharan country. And you have to realize that air traffic control in those countries is not as, as sophisticated as we have in Europe or in, in let's say, in the United States. They don't have radar there. That they're basically plotting on the paper chart. The positions of airplanes and i do that by uh, by asking the pilots what's your position what's your radio so basically by asking the pilots what their distance to a certain navigation beacon is and their relative bearing and they they just plot it on the chart and they plot it with all the airplanes and then they give us some clearance to either go left or right or descend and climb and i was giving my my position plots to the air traffic control and I was listening to other traffic over my headset as well. That it's not really that busy. And all of a sudden, I realized that there was an airplane uh, giving his position that was eerily similar to ours. And my captain, I think he was reading a book or was doing something else. So I already notified him. And I said, well, we have to be careful now because there can be a confusion in, in position of, of airplanes. Um, but then again, every airplane has its um, has a system aboard, which is called TCAS. And it's 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 a... It's a uh, it stands for Traffic Collision uh, Avoidance System, and it means that all the airplanes that have TCAS on board, they communicate with each other, and they warn the pilots if we're getting too close to each other. Uh, we also mm. see, basically, on our navigation display, we see all the traffic around us that's uh, that's indicating how high they are flying or the relative position to us. And we had no traffic on our navigation display whatsoever. I just hear, heard the, the other pilot talking in my headset about this position. So my captain said, well, you know, the moment we see him on the, on the navigation display, we'll know where he is and uh, it'll be fine. So 
uh, at one point, the uh, the other traffic again. I was really attuned to to this guy because I I had this uncanny feeling that he must have been pretty close. And he the 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 controller of the the airport basically cleared this other traffic, which was a really big jetliner, uh, to descend through our level, basically to start his approach to the airport. And all of a sudden. It was pitch black night. All of a sudden, I see uh, the airplane just descending just in front of us. And uh, it, it must have been seconds from, from impact. And probably the uh, the other pilots of the big jetliner, they've never seen us because we were a really small uh, turboprop. Uh, it was dark. So I, I don't think they've ever seen us, especially coming from, from, from uh, an angle, like coming from our, uh, let's say, 8 o'clock, descending through our level. Uh, so the other pilots probably have never seen us. And my captain and I, we just looked at the at the at the at the huge machine that was just descending through our level, and within within a second it was gone. So it was it was happening within a second. There was nothing we could have done, and it was really close call. And um, yeah, then you realize that not all airplanes in Africa they have this TICA system, which is mandatory. But uh, you're just completely dependent on 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 the maintenance level of other airplanes. And in this case, air traffic controller, even though he 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 should have known where we were. It, it 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 didn't uh, 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 it did it, it didn't send an alarm uh, off with him. So as I said, you know, I I had the feeling something was was off because these numbers were early correct, and then all of a sudden you see it happening. The airplane descends through our level within a second. Uh, danger is gone, but this is a really strange feeling of of. Um, being completely helpless there in that in that spot and position, and then of course you file some reports. You say, "Oh, we had a near miss. Uh, this this happened." But in Africa, I mean, nobody <laughs> no nobody cares there. So the report is probably being read and just being thrown away, and that's it. So um, this kind of stuff that happens probably quite often. I was just lucky that I uh, uh, yeah that I, that I survived it. But it's 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 Africa. It's Africa. You know, especially when we were flying in Africa, we had this saying. It's 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 quite famous saying. TIA. It's, uh, this is Africa. It's like the, the the excuse for basically go with the flow and and yeah. TIA. Yeah. This is Africa. That's crazy to be relying on dots on a piece of paper to not have a collision with another airplane. So that airplane just didn't have the system, or its system was turned off, or something. Could be, could be as well, or maybe it was faulty, or maybe it was a mistake. Maybe yeah. the pilots ne- never switched it on, or I don't know, I don't know. Uh, even nowadays, when we were flying with uh, with our commercial airliners to, let's say, to to Johannesburg, so we basically fly from Europe all the way to the southern part of uh, uh, of Africa. We basically cross all those countries, and what we constantly do, we not only talking with every country with the air traffic controller, but we also make position reports to all the other pilots that are flying the same route. So every time um, I'm I'm crossing another airway, because there's like uh, highways in the air, which we call airways, where all the traffic is flying. Uh, every time we cross another airway, we make a position report on a common frequency, so that if there are other pilots flying out there, they know exactly where we are, um, and, and we keep each other in the loop because you have to be very vigilant in those countries. So, um, yeah, it's 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 not a unique uh, incident, unfortunately. But yeah. then again, yeah, then again, there are so so few accidents, uh, relatively seen, that uh, it, it's uh, it's 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 a major airspace. So uh, airplanes are quite small in comparison. So that's I yeah. I can't imagine that seeing a plane, you know, borderline smash into you, your co-pilot doesn't see it. You know, if there are passengers on the plane, none of them see it. And you're just sitting there like, holy fucking shit. I we yeah. almost just exploded in the sky. 
Yeah, we had about 50 passengers in the back with a couple of uh, stewardesses, etc. Well, this other airplane, it was a, a TriStar. It must have carried maybe 300 passengers. So in total, there were about 350 people almost uh, uh, gone from existence. And there were just two Dutch pilots who actually saw it happening. And it was over within a second. And that's a really strange realization. <laughs> Do you know if it's gotten better since in Africa? Because what, this was like 20 years ago? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I know from experience that, uh, for example, uh, some of the countries where I'm still flying to nowadays sometimes, uh, you see it is it has been improved. Uh, air traffic controllers, especially at bigger airports, they get training from uh, American or European air traffic controllers. So you see the level of safety going up. But then again, uh, some of the countries, especially the politically unstable countries, uh, it's it's sometimes just still a mess. And um, mm. yeah, yeah, it, it, I must say the, the training we get nowadays as commercial pilots when we're going to fly to Africa is quite... Is is, uh, is quite good so we're being told what to expect uh, uh, and, and and be vigilant for example when you hear traffic over the radio be very uh, vigilant with uh, with what you hear and, and be proactive in things but flying in africa it's uh, it's quite something yeah yeah so, so afghanistan was after this or when when were you based out of there um, basically, the company started flying in Africa and later got a, a contract in Afghanistan flying for the ISF. And then after a while, it was both mixed. Uh, some, some months mm. I was flying in Afghanistan, some months in, in Africa. Uh, but uh, the first time I went to Afghanistan was in 2006. And uh, I, uh, I think I was in Afghanistan about three or four months in 2006. And uh, later on, I, uh, I went again in 2008. But in 2006, I spent quite some time in uh, in Kabul, and that was that was that was really really something. Uh, we were flying for um, I think it was the Norwegian Army, and they didn't have any airplanes themselves that could fly there. So uh, they what what the military is often doing is they they uh, hire these contractors that can do the uh, the transport. Uh, they say this like the, the the aerial transport work for them. Mm. So the uh, the Norwegian Army they they hired our airplane for roughly 80 flying hours a month. And especially in 2006, uh, that it wasn't really that busy yet. So we were only flying maybe 20 hours domestic flights out of Kabul for the Norwegian army. And the rest of the time, uh, we were just basically doing nothing. But of course, after a couple of months, uh, a couple of weeks, uh, the other nations that were also based in Kabul, they realized that we didn't have too much work on our hands. So very often when we were sitting in the evening uh, at dinner, there was one of the the, the Dutch uh, uh, officers came to us or the Americans or the Canadians. They're asking, hey, guys, can you do some flights for us tomorrow or can you fly to, uh, to this and this place? So in the end, we flew for a lot of different nations and we flew to a lot of different uh, uh, domestic uh, airports and cities in, uh, in Afghanistan. And that was that was really something because yeah. flying in Africa, you have to be vigilant. But flying in an active war zone uh, where there's a lot of military operation going on, uh, where air traffic control is is um, limited, not 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 because they're really bad, because it was basically taken care of by the Americans, so did all the. Uh, air traffic control but afghanistan consists of mostly mountains and uh, the fokker 50 cannot really fly high so the moment you pass one of the mountains uh, there's no line of sight contact radio contact anymore with any radar oper uh, radar or radio operator so after takeoff uh, we were basically pretty much on our own because there was just simply no possible way to get into radio contact so you're literally all by yourself there and you just have to have to uh, yeah find your way and that was that was that was really adventurous, uh, all in all. Yeah. So you're flying through. It's the the Hindu Kush, right, in Afghanistan, and you have limited communications. 
2006. So like you said, this is a pretty violent wartime in Afghanistan. Did you ever have any incidents or, or close calls where there were uh, factions stationed in the mountains that would shoot at you or just any sort of potential attack that you had to thwart, whether it be a missile or bullets or things like that? Um, well, the Fokker 50 was not equipped with any um, uh, warning uh, systems, so I think most military airplanes have a warning system that they're being alerted when they're being targeted by a, a radar tracker or some, some missile. Uh, so we were flying blissfully unaware of anything that was aimed at us. Um, I must say, I've never seen any rockets uh, being launched at us, uh, etc. Um, but... Um, yeah. So, so okay. During the fight, I don't think I've seen uh, I've, I've seen any actual shooting at our airplane, but we were most vulnerable. Uh, airplanes are most vulnerable when they're actually on the ground. Uh, for terrorists or for uh, military factions, uh, it's much easier to shoot at an airplane that's on the ground or that's even parked than try to shoot it out of the air. So, based in Kabul, uh, the airport is in uh, in the middle of the city, surrounded by some uh, big hills. Uh, quite often, it happened that uh, some militants. They, they basically fired RPGs or mortars or any kind of weapons uh, towards the airport in a hope, hoping to, to, to hit one of the airplanes. So it happened uh, more than a handful of uh, occasions uh, that we were being shot at. The whole, the whole uh, airport was being yeah. shot at by mortars and, and missiles. So we had to run into the bunker and to yeah, basically wait, wait until the all-clear signal was, was given. And a couple of times we also flew to one of these uh, remote uh, gravel strips. And there was uh, not really air traffic control, but one of the local uh, military officers, they had this little handheld radio that we could call in by, and they could tell us if the airport was clear. So not just clear of, uh, of, of vehicles on the runway, but also clear of potential uh, um, uh, militants around, and they would clear us for a landing. And a couple of times it happened that we were just in front of the runway, and the guy started screaming through the headphones, said, oh, go around, go around, you have to go back to Kabul, because uh, right now they're starting to shoot here. And it's really strange, because you're just sitting there, and you're looking out over the windows, you see this little runway, and there's nothing happening there. But apparently the guy on the ground is, is, is noticing some, some, some fighting there. So the first thing you do is just hit the, hit the power levers and just get out of there. Uh, and that's really surreal, because you realize you're very close to being shot at, but you don't see it visually, and that's that's uh, that's interesting. That's that's a very interesting experience. Yeah, and it's not like you could just put your full attention on not being shot at because you're still a pilot. You're still flying a plane. You're still maneuvering, going through the mountains, all destinations, all the things involved, the the tedious aspects of flying through the sky that I know nothing about. But it's not like you could just you know sit there trying to you know thwart missiles or bullets so i can't imagine i i can't imagine going you know even flying for five minutes in an area where you would not be uh there'd be no warning if something was shot at you the only warning would be i guess you would hear it at the last second but then it would be too late and you would also just have to focus on your job and be like i hope no one shoots a missile at me today let's uh you know fingers crossed <laughs> yeah exactly it's, it was it was funny the first time i was flying out of kabul because we were basically sent in as passengers there the airplane was already based there and flying around so we took over from another crew and the first time i was uh taking off from uh, from kabul uh, actually my captain was uh, was flying and i was doing the radio and i was really anxious and i was constantly looking out because we had to circle over the city a couple of times to gain altitude because the uh the airport is very high above sea level it's within the mountains so in a really confined space airspace you have to circle a couple of times 
to, to gain altitudes before you can cross over the mountains. And the moment we were turning, from my window, I could see the entire city. And I was constantly looking out, just wondering if I see some rocket or missile shooting at us, which is kind of ridiculous, but you're flying in a war zone. But after the fourth time, maybe 10th time, you don't even care anymore. You know, if you're going to be shot at, well, yeah, what are you going to do? There's nothing you can do. And besides, um, the chances of being shot at are, are so remote. So it's it's interesting to see how quickly you, you switch from uh, being kind of nervous to just accepting it and, uh, and go... Uh, go go about your day that's really that's really interesting and uh yeah it's it's it has something uh, fatalistic about it as well because um certain risks you can uh, avoid for example when you're flying and especially if you're flying in in the clouds you have to be very vigilant of where the mountains are and if you start descending uh, you have to make sure that you descend not too early not too late so you don't fly into the mountains but this is stuff that you can control yourself this is something that that you have an influence on so we're really vigilant in, in making those decisions but being shot at by by some uh, some guy with a with a missile there's nothing you can do about it so I mean, yeah, uh, airplanes are flying there every day for the last uh, 50, 60 years, uh, and only a handful of them have been shot down. So just go with the flow. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I imagine the adrenaline can get a little bit of addicting, too, when, once you acclimate to it. I'm assuming your your job now as a pilot comes with a lot less risk than when you were flying over Afghanistan. Do, do you ever have moments where you miss the excitement of you know, like maybe I'll get shot down today. Maybe I won't like you just like beyond the fear of it, just the, the adventure of flying through an area like that. Yeah, definitely. And it's, uh, actually I noticed the moments I stepped out of the airplane for the first time in, in Kabul, I just fell in love with the country and I don't know why, but, uh, there is something so profoundly, uh, mystical about, about Afghanistan. So for, on a personal level, I, I just fell in love with the country with, uh, with, uh, with the deep blue sky, the beautiful mountains. So that made it really uh, fun to fly there as well. Um, but it's especially in retrospect, uh, that I realized I really, really loved the adventure and the, and the adrenaline because I did that for about two years, but all that time flying the turboprop, I was, uh, had the mindset of, I have to build flying hours. And if I have enough flying hours, I can finally apply for a real airline and fly the big jets and uh, have a fancy uniform, whatever. And the moment I, uh, it was in 2007, I was hired on the 737, flying for uh, for quite a good Dutch airline, flying passengers all over Europe. I realized I, 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 I was missing the adventure. There is, there is, uh, how do you say this? It was a realization that um, this kind of uh, adrenaline can be really addictive and that's uh, that's mm. quite interesting for, uh, to to realize because i'm not really an adrenaline junkie but flying there in afghanistan and just living those adventures and it's not so much about being shut down because i think the risks are, are relatively low but it's the total package of of, of adventure of having mm. uh, different experiences every day and that's something that's it's only in retrospect i realized it was really really addictive and um um, fortunately, I made the decision to, to, to progress with my career because a couple of my friends, they stayed in this uh, contract business and they've been flying in and, uh, in and out of Afghanistan and, and, and Africa for a long time. And they had a really hard time adjusting to, uh, to the professional uh, level of, of commercial flying. Mm. And it, it, for me, fortunately, I wasn't um, 
uh, how do you say this? I, I was I was still flexible enough to make that transition to the really disciplined uh, procedural wise flying of commercial flying. But for pilots who stay in this world of, of of cowboy flying, let's say, it's really difficult and sometimes unpleasant to make this transition. So in retrospect, I made the right decision at the right time to 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 move ahead. Um, but I, 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 do, I do miss it. I still miss it. And then again, unfortunately, I still have the, uh, uh, the pictures and I still have the memories, which will last a lifetime. Uh, but sometimes I would, yeah, I, would, I, would, I would like to do it again. Yeah. Especially with the knowledge. Yeah. And, yeah. Were, you, were you taking photos all throughout that time or when did you start getting serious about the, the photography in the air? Uh, the, the photography pretty much started uh, from the first time I, I flew as a student pilot because uh, immediately I was I was uh, captivated by the views and, and, and how extremely beautiful uh, flight is. So the, the photography pretty much started early on, but it only got more serious uh, basically after I went to Afghanistan for the first time and also flying in Africa because I realized I'm literally in a unique position to capture everything. And there are only a handful of pilots uh, able to to see and document it, but especially flying there in Afghanistan, flying in Africa, it's unique. Mm. It's literally unique. And I realized that all these things, not so much the views, but also the experiences and the 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 the, 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 the airports and the passengers, etc. I had to document it because it was so unique. And fortunately, uh, a lot of colleagues they really appreciated my photography because they could finally show people at home as well what we were doing and um yeah that especially the the adventures in, uh, in afghanistan triggered me to to take my uh, my photography to the next level so i i invested in better equipment and uh um yeah yeah it was it was it was really the trigger to uh uh yeah to to, to keep capturing the beautiful things from from my perspective yeah yeah and aside from the 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 adventurousness of your your blog posts and the the photography of beautiful landscapes i i understand that you've also taken photos of some things that you consider unexplainable yeah at least uh, at least one time I, I was able to capture something that i that i cannot explain uh, three other times, uh, I've seen something that I cannot explain, but I, it happened so incredibly fast that I, uh, I was unable to to, to capture it. Um, yeah, but that's that's the added benefit of having a camera close by. That uh, if you see something that you cannot explain, then uh, you can uh, you can document it as well. But it's uh, fortunately, yeah. as I said, only only once that I was able to 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 take a picture of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to go through some of these unexplained sightings and just the the sightings in general and. There's, uh, I believe there, there's four times you've seen something that could be categorized as unexplained. And one of those you have a, a photo of, which I'm also going to link the website and the, the photos to the, the podcast, wherever people are listening to or watching this. W what do you feel would be the best way to go about telling the story of how you encountered these things? Because the, you, we could go chronologically. Uh, we could go uh, based on just, you know, impact that it had on you. So um, I will leave it up to you how you want to tell tell this story and we'll we'll go through this however you see see fit. Sure. 
Yeah, it's um, the first time that I saw something that I still cannot explain was in 2005, and it was just uh, I think it was still in training when I was uh, co-pilot on the on the F50 turboprop. So I was I was fresh out of uh, flying school basically. I, I didn't have much experience, uh, let alone flying at night with a, with a big airliner like that. And I remember we were flying over Germany, South Germany, and we were flying in between two two cloud layers. And as a co-pilot, I was looking towards my captain. And all of a sudden, it, through his window, through his windshield, I see a really bright light. Uh, it's impossible to say how big it was, but I see a really bright light falling through the cloud layer above, uh, vertically down, illuminating the cloud layer below before it, it descended through the cloud layer and disappearing like that. And it, it was bright white light. It wasn't pulsating. It didn't have any color. It was just a really bright light moving vertically down. And within one second, it was gone. And I remember that my instructor or the captain, he said, well, that was really strange. And I, I was I was completely uh, shocked by it because um, I had no no clue what it could have been. But back then I thought, you know, it's probably something uh, 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 weather related. Maybe it's a kind of different kind of, of lightning uh, that I haven't seen before. But now only in retrospect, let's say 18 years later, I still haven't haven't seen anything like it. And now I realize that it, it, it was quite uh, anomalous, uh, uh, what, what we saw there over Germany. Interestingly enough, a couple of years later, I think it was in 2009, I was flying with a 737, Boeing 737, um, during day from Greece back to uh, the Netherlands. And we were flying parallel uh, to the um, Albanian Greek coastline over the Adriatic Sea. It was uh, clear skies, no, no clouds whatsoever. And I see almost identical bright light falling vertically down and disappearing into the sea below and my captain uh, saw it as well we were both uh, really surprised so twice i've seen pretty much the same thing a really bright light falling or maybe maybe better said moving vertically down and just gone in an instant and of course this happened so fast and it's completely uh, unexpected so i wasn't able to to take any pictures of it but um yeah i've seen yeah. it twice now and i still no clue what it could have been the one in I want to go back to the one in Germany in 2005. The would you would categorize them as both falling lights, the one in 2005 and 2009. So like the first falling light was Germany 2005. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I prefer to say moving because it seems moving. That, yeah, because the speed is much faster than you would expect for anything to to free fall down. How, do you remember, or, or did you have a way of telling how far the cloud layers were apart from each other? So you're flying in between the clouds. There's cloud layer up here, cloud layer down here. Do you have an estimation of that? Yeah, roughly, uh, a rough estimation would be about um, six, 7,000 feet. So it was moving within one second, about two kilometers down. Wow. And it seemed like it was, you said it was going much more than terminal velocity so it wasn't just gravity it was something that was had some sort of system uh propelling it or, or moving it forward and it was just a it was a big bright light with unclear margins like there was nothing that you could see like a any sort of uh shape to a uh, container or something like that. The light was just so bright. It was obscuring all sorts of objects and shadows and things like that. 
Yeah, it was just pure white uh, light. It's also impossible to say how big it was because it's very difficult to to judge distances and and size because it was, as I said, you know, it was just a light. Uh, but it it's it appeared not to be too too big. So it was a singular light. Let's say the size of a basketball or maybe maybe the size of a car. I don't know. Uh, but there was there were no discernible features. Nothing, nothing. And it didn't leave a trail either. So it wasn't something burning up that you would see maybe a smoke trail or some sparks flying up. It was just a single pure white bright light. That's it. Was it the type of light that like when when you stare into the sun, you can only do it for a half a second and then your eyes start to burn in water? Was it something like that? Or when it passed your vision for a second, you saw it was bright, but it wasn't like you were. It wasn't causing you any pain or anything like that. Exactly, it's uh, it was comparable to uh, one of the uh, bright planets that you sometimes see in the night sky, mm. like uh, a, a Venus or, or Jupiter. It's uh, uh, it's it's a very very bright spot, but it's it's not burning. It's it's not it's not hurting your eyes. At least this is this is the closest to to yeah to what what it looked like for me. Are you able to tell if it made a break in the clouds? Like, are, could you see a path of it, like pulling the clouds? Like, sometimes you'll see like a, a hole where things start to separate, or was it, were you not able to see anything? No, no. In this case, it was just as I said, it was illuminating the clouds uh, below as it fell through, and yeah. then it was just gone. But I, it, it was also at night, so it was impossible to see if it if it if it left a hole or uh, uh, if it, if it did anything. Uh, with the clouds, because I can't imagine if it was emitting some s- sort of heat, it would have had a, a effect on the clouds, but it, it was impossible to see. Yeah, was it? Yeah, I, yeah the, I wasn't even thinking about the heat. I guess it was far away enough where if it was giving off heat, it probably, you think it wouldn't have been a problem. It wouldn't have like melted the plane or anything like that. Well, I, I'm pretty sure that I, whatever it was, I, I hope it will never uh, uh, hit the airplane because even if it's like a weather phenomena, like a ball lightning or something else, uh, there, there's clearly a lot of energy involved. So anything that impacts the airplane, even if it's uh, uh, if it's a lightning strike or or uh, anything else, it can potentially damage the airplane. So I'm really happy that whatever it was <laughs> was kind of yeah. far away. Uh, but it's 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 one of my biggest fears that. Uh, uh, you hit something with the airplane in the sky, and it can be just a bird. So even a small bird can do tremendous damage. So I'm pretty happy that it was far away. Yeah. How many people are in the cockpit when you when you see it? Do you like? Are are you with someone else? Were you by yourself? What what was kind of the 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 environment for you when you sighted that thing, whatever uh, it was. It, in, in all of the times that I've seen something anomalous, uh, I was always together with a with a colleague. And all of the times, my colleague has also seen the same thing. Um, sometimes we're sitting in the cockpit with three pilots, especially on those really long flights. Uh, we have a third pilot, so we can extend the duty a bit more. Uh, so sometimes we're sitting in the cockpit with three guys, but uh, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, just with two, two pilots. Mm. And so you both see the same thing. I imagine if it was like you turn to the other person i'm just saying what i i'm trying to imagine myself in that situation you turn to someone and you say like did you just fucking see that like what 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 the hell was that and the other person says you know yeah like i have no idea uh what was that conversation like and, and what were those moments immediately after what what did you talk about what did you do did did you call it in do you uh you're just like i i i don't know just keep 
flying, obviously. Like, what what were those moments like? The few minutes after you saw the the falling light or the moving light. Well, over Germany, it happened really fast, and my captain was just he, he said something like, "Oh wow." But they just shrugged his shoulders and just continued. So especially with me having no experience, no flying experience back then, I decided, you know, uh, yeah, probably it's it's, some, it's something normal. It's, it, it should be okay. But the second time I saw it, I had some more experience already. And my uh, my captain, she was also, uh, she also saw the, the, the moving lights. And she was really uh, surprised by this as well. And back then, um, I, was, I, I was doing the radio. So I decided to basically call the air traffic controller uh, to ask if there was any military exercise going on. Because my first uh, go-to answer is, well, it must be something military. It might be, uh, it might be some, some uh, missile test or, or whatever fancy weapon they're, they're, they're testing. And this could potentially be a risk for my airplane. So um, back then, it was in 2009, I said, so I had some, some more flying experience. I decided to call the air traffic controller and ask him if anything was up. And he immediately replied, really kind of bored. He said, no, there's no airplane. There's no military uh, traffic whatsoever. And by the way, just contact now the next controller because you're leaving my airspace. And that made me realize that there was no military exercise going on. There were no naval exercises whatsoever. And that left me clueless. And then, yeah. You look at each other and say, well, that's strange. Have you ever seen that? No, never seen it. Okay. Well, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, from, from that moment on, there's no risk for the airplane anymore. Um, yeah, it must be, must be, must be weather related or something else. And you just continue with your, uh, uh, with your day. Yeah. So the, the second falling light, you, you call it in, you have communication, you check with the, the military operations, anything is going on in the area. The, the first falling light where you turn to your captain and he just shrugs it off and is like, that was, I don't know the exact, like that was weird or whatever he said. What do you think was uh, different about the first situation that caused the, the, the sighting not to be called in or at least just like the, the sense of like, holy shit just didn't seem that great at least in terms of the the other captain that was there what do you think was different about that first situation whether it's uh personality wise or or whatever with the other captain that made you not call it in for whatever reason or not make as big of a deal out of it well the captain's reaction was actually uh pretty much the same both the times uh, but the biggest difference was was my experience and realizing that uh, what i saw was was simply not normal so it, it was basically my flying experience uh, made me more assertive in, in calling the air traffic controller. And I could have done that the first time as well, but I was just so inexperienced. As I said, you know, I was, I was barely uh, feeling at home in the cockpit uh, of, of the airplane. So everything was new. And yeah, if the captain shrugs his shoulders, yeah, well, it's probably okay. Uh, but later, in the second time, I realized that this was, this was more than just uh, 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 amazing. So uh, yeah, I, I, I was just more, more assertive the second time. Did you get a sense that your the the first captain had seen things like that before which is why his reaction was so jaded or was is it just you know that's how pilots tend to react in those sorts of situations yeah yeah many many pilots um yeah they they, they don't really care you know as long as there's no direct um threats to the airplane or the safety of the airplane yeah, they just shrugged their shoulders. Uh, some other pilots, they react differently. Some pilots, they are uh, much more proactive on it. And uh, other pilots, they they, uh, they literally say they don't want to know. 
And it's I actually recently had a really interesting conversation with one of my colleagues, and uh, because they know I've been coming forward with my sightings now in a in a very uh, down to earth way, and um, this colleague he never seen anything he couldn't explain, but he was really open and honest towards me he said well i really hope i will never see anything because um it's it scares him to bits to to realize that there might be things that we cannot explain so this could be um um, um how do you say this like a barrier to to actively uh contact air traffic control or make a report about it because it's like um uh, some people just prefer not to see it and if they see it just just shut their mind off mm. and just ignore it and i think this this not only applies to uap but also different different things in uh, in society but uh, yeah it, it, it there's so many pilots there's so many different personalities and uh, um yeah it, it, it's, it's difficult to say if every pilot reacts like this or that it's it, it, it depends on the person depends on the experience and depends on, on previous sightings as well i guess yeah, so, so you've had conversations with other pilots where they will say, "I'd ra- even if I could know what it is, I'd, I'd rather not know the source of the things that I've seen that are unexplainable. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And it's also interesting to, um, uh, to see that, especially now since I came forward with my sightings, um, I've, uh, I've been approached by a lot of pilots who, for the first time, tell me their stories, which is, which is uh, very interesting. It's also a big honor to see that people that have been experiencing things are finally feeling the, 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 the liberty and the security to, to share it with me. Uh, but also my direct colleagues, uh, they've been coming forward with stuff they've seen. And um, in general, I would say that maybe 30 to 40% of the pilots have at one point in their flying career seen something they cannot readily identify. And I'm not saying it's it's UAP. It could be something strange weather related. It could be something uh, really exotic military. I'm, I'm, I'm not excluding any, any of those possibilities. Uh, but roughly 30% of the pilots, they have seen something and uh, they're kind of hesitant to, to come forward with it because of the stigma yeah. around UAP and, and especially the the previously called uh, UFOs, because um, yeah, it's 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 just a stigma that that's preventing a lot of uh, yeah credible professionals from from coming forward. Yeah, if you whatever it is, if you if you have something where thirty to forty percent of pilots are reporting seeing something unexplainable that you know can not only be a a, a threat to the you know security in general but like for the security of that flight you're you're landing safely protecting passengers protecting your own life i don't know how many thousands of flights that would be 30 to 40 percent combining all of those pilots experiences but you know if it were anything else if, if a pilot said that you know 40 percent of the time uh there are clowns flying around the sky and they're fucking with our plane the uh, like faa would immediately be like well we have to figure out like where these clowns are coming from what they are like who's sending these clowns like why the fuck are there just like clowns in the sky that's crazy but like you're right there is a uh there is some sort of a, a stigma a stickiness that is attached to people that are willing to talk about these types of things like yourself regardless of what the the source is and you know you've you've uh i've listened to past interviews you've been very consistent on saying you know you're open to whatever it is you you just want to know for the the sake of safety and curiosity um so yeah it is it is a weird 
things surrounding that topic, people tend to tighten up and close off. Yeah, well, by the way, it's, it's not that pilots see uh, unexplained things 30% of the time. It's just that, let's say, 30% of, of my direct colleagues have seen something once or twice in their entire career. Ah, okay. So it's, it's a very inconsistent um, uh, a phenomenon, whatever it is. Uh, and I, I, we can talk about the other things that I've seen that are quite distinctly different than just uh, the falling lights. Um, but it's uh, it's unpredictable, it's inconsistent, and uh, it's very rare. But still, about 30, 30% of the pilots, they have seen something that they cannot explain during their career as a pilot. And that still that still warrants um, destigmatization because even if it just happens once, uh, it, if if there's a safety issue involved, we have to take it serious. And uh, the same with the with the incident I told you about with the uh, the near collision over Africa. Uh, this is something very practical that we have to prevent, and that's why airplanes nowadays they have these TCAS systems to prevent this this from happening. Of course, they have to switch it on. But um, aviation is all about safety, and there have been so many accidents in the past, and we constantly learn. About about it we have these uh, reconstructions of what happened and we have this corporate voice recorder etc and um, yeah i think the same has to be uh, the same approach uh, has to be applied to the uap phenomena even if it just happened once even if, if there's maybe uh, one accident that could lead to uh, to a decrease in safety it has to be taken serious and uh, yeah i think that's the that that's the only approach uh, it's helpful yeah and and you said the the one in february 2009 with the moving light, very similar, except that one went down towards the ocean. Was there, do you remember seeing any indication that there was movement? Like, could you even tell if there's movement in the water or waves or anything like that? Or you just saw a ball of light disappear once it hit the ocean? Yeah, it was it was too far away to see any splash, uh, physical splash. It was too far away to to see anything happening on the uh, the ocean surface. Uh, I think it was around twenty kilometers away from us, so it was it was quite far away. But from my perspective, the light just uh, moved into the ocean and it was gone. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything because it was so far away. It could have maybe uh, caused some ripples or steam or whatever it was, but it was just too far away for us to see. Yeah, the the only thing. I've seen videos of that I could ever describe as a ball of light would be a ball of lightning. But based on what I've seen, those move very slow. Like they literally just kind of like move through the air like this and it looks very strange. Um, but yeah, I've, ne I've never seen or heard anything that was moving that fast that could move that altitude in that, such a short period of time. Yeah, and especially in 2009, when we were flying there over the uh, over the Adriatic Sea, there was no no clouds, there was no buildup, there was no electrical storm, no thunderstorm. And I think is a, I've been I've been thinking about it a lot since. Uh, if there was some sort of a ball lightning, it would make more sense uh, to be present if there's a lot of uh, thunderstorms around or a lot of electromagnetical discharge, etc. But it was just clear skies, blue skies, and. Uh, I have no clue how uh, how a ball lightning could form in in, in clear skies, and especially move move that uh, that fast. But then again, um, it could be a weather phenomenon that's just simply not understood. But for me, they they stand out as uh, um, yeah strange things that that I still cannot explain. What about a a meteor or something burning up in the atmosphere? Do you think it could be anything like that? Something coming from space? Um, I've seen like an thousands. inanimate object. Yeah, I, I've seen thousands and thousands of meteors burning up uh, in the atmosphere. And it's always very spectacular. They pretty much always move in a in a diagonal line, uh, burning up through the atmosphere. Um, 
I'm not 100% sure if a meteor could actually fall vertically down. Uh, it seems unlikely to me, but I, I guess it, it could happen. The biggest issue I have with the hypothesis of, of being a meteor is that meteors always burn up. Uh, they either leave a, a smoke trail. Some, some of the meteors, they actually make it down to the surface of the Earth. I've seen it once or twice as well. Very spectacular. But they leave a, a, a smoke trail behind. And they, they don't glow white as I've seen them uh, glowing. Uh, in this case, the two vertically moving lights, they were going extremely fast, but they didn't leave any smoke trail. There was nothing burning. There was mm. no... Um, yeah, it, it seems... It, it seemed completely different than all the thousands of meteors I've seen so far. So um, I cannot dim- dismiss it completely, but for me, it, it's, it's, it's not a satisfactory uh, um, explanation for these for these vertically moving lights. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you about the the other sightings. I just want to run to the bathroom real quick, and I'll be right back. So the the, the 2005 and the 2009, you'd both categorize as moving light. What is the next sighting that would be good to get into after those um the, the other two sightings were completely different in nature uh but both equally interesting uh, very different uh, uh let's see the other sighting i had was in 2005 it was also still relatively inexperienced as a pilot um but it happened when we were flying for olympic airways or olympic airlines uh big greek airline based out of uh, athens and we were flying with these uh, turboprop airplanes to all these little islands everywhere. It was, it was a lot of fun flying. And I was flying together with my colleague. And I think we, we landed at the airport of uh, Mykonos, one of those really small airports mm. um, with I, I, isolated islands with a small runway. And it's just a small runway with on one end. Uh, oh, sorry, on one side, the, the terminal. And uh, after landing, we had to make a 180-degree turn on the runway and taxiing back. And that night, we were flying... Uh, well, I, I guess it must have, around, must have been around 10 in the evening or so. We landed, and the moment... That's we when... Uh, oh, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, that's when everyone in Mykonos uh, wakes up from their nap to go out and party. I've been there a couple of times, <laughs> 10 p.m. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, may, maybe it's related to the to the thing we've seen there, but uh, yeah. no, it's... Uh, um, uh, so, so what happens? We were making the 180-degree turn, and the cockpit was facing uh, due north, and all of a sudden, and my captain saw it as well, we see in the night sky, it was, uh, uh, there were no clouds, which is all the stars, we see a really bright light appearing. It was almost the same uh, appearance as one of those falling lights I've seen before. It's like It looks like a very bright planet, uh, as I said before, you know, like Mars or, or Venus, you sometimes see in the sky. But in this case, the light appeared, it... Um, Moved, disappeared, uh, reappeared again a little bit further down uh, towards the east. This happened about four times. It made a, a stuttering motion, like it was uh, the engine was cranking up and it was making four times a stuttering, appearing, a reappearing motion. And all of a sudden it disappeared again. It reappeared quite a bit further and it just shot off due east with incredible speed. And there was no acceleration. It was just instant speed, gone. And I remember that my captain was seeing it as well. I said, whoa, what the heck is that? Uh, but yeah, then again, you know, he's still busy with, with steering the airplane. And we went to the terminal. And uh, that night, 
we knew that the uh, carrier group, the U.S. carrier group with the USS Theodore Roosevelt uh, was passing by in the Mediterranean Sea uh, a bit further south. We don't know the ex exact location of these carrier groups but because that's classified, but they closed down whole parts of the airspace to make sure that there's no intruders getting too close to these uh, naval ships. And in the flight preparation that day, we knew that the carrier group was passing by. So it, it basically stated that for the entire night, this was airspace... Uh, uh, the, the closed airspace or off limits for us. At the moment, we saw these lights shooting down or stuttering and shooting shooting off. Uh, for a long time, I thought, well, this probably related. Maybe, maybe it's some uh, some high tech military toys, or maybe this is some some uh, some missile being launched. Um, but I've always wondered what it was because, especially the instant speed. I was about to say acceleration, but it wasn't even acceleration. It was instant speed. That's that's that was so incredibly fast. Uh, it really made me wonder if there's any um, uh, high tech equipment that that can do that. Not just having the energy to accelerate uh, to such incredible speed, but also the materials to withstand that that kind of uh, speed and acceleration. It's it's it, it was mind blowing. And it was only in later years that I, um, uh, after I've been reading some some books about UAP etc., that this stuttering motion and instant speed from lights in the sky had been observed, uh, especially around uh, nuclear missile sites and uh, also nuclear installations. And the moment I read those reports dating back from the 50s all the way up to, to now, uh, they described exactly what we saw that night over Mykonos with the carrier group uh, passing by quite, quite close. So for me, this is an indication that there is possibly a, a correlation with this with this nuclear powered ship, and I, maybe they had some nuclear weapons on board as well. And this really strange light that we saw in the sky, and I've never seen anything remotely since. Nothing. Yeah, I've heard stories of, uh, and I've read a couple account accounts. Of, it may have been the same or, or probably similar accounts of people who work at nuclear plants that report missiles being shut down and, and disarmed out of nowhere without any warning. It's not part of the system. You know, it's not a, a superior coming in and shutting down a missile. It's just like literally just deactivates and then it, it comes back online. So it's what, whatever it is, it, like there have been some, uh, like you said, consistently reported UAP activities around nuclear sites that correlate uh, sometimes with the, uh, not that it's causing, but like a correlation with the shutting down of the weapons that are present at that facility. Yeah, definitely. And uh, have you read the book UFOs and Nukes from Robert Hastings? I haven't, but it's on my list. Oh, it's it's uh, it's quite a big book, about five or six hundred pages, but uh, it's it's excellent work. Um, and basically, he describes uh, all the incidents that are known, at least the known incidents, that have happened since the uh, earliest uh, nuclear test, even the, the radiation fallout, where some strange lights have been seen over the United States, uh, all the way up to present day with incidents happening uh, um, uh, in the UK at uh, nuclear armed bases in Germany, uh, and basically all over the world. And his his work, UFOs and nukes, it's uh, it's 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 absolutely worth reading. And as uh, <coughs> apologies, um, in that book, I actually read some accounts of these stuttering lights and also vertically moving lights that uh, describe exactly what I've seen as well. And this was really a, a, a pleasant surprise to see that I'm not making things up. Of course, I know I'm not making things up, but it was like a confirmation that uh, what I've seen is really something um, um, anomalous. Yeah. 
So the lights that you saw on the or a single light uh, that you saw on the runway in Mykonos, did it make a shape with where it was lighting up? Like, was it the four corners of a square? Was it just like making a straight line and then it went off? Was there any shape to it, like a pattern? No, it was exactly the same as, as the falling lights. It was just a, a single uh, bright light. And it didn't have any shape. It didn't leave any uh, smoke. It didn't leave any sparks or glow, whatever. It was just a solid, defined light, very much like a planet, a bright planet. And as it shut off, it didn't leave any traces. It didn't leave any glow or smoke. It just it just moved extremely fast. And that was it. So there was... Yeah, there but, was, yeah. but when it shut off, so it shut off a few times and it came back on. Yeah, so it was and like before. stuttering movements, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that, that that's uh, what I mean. Like, with the stuttering, if you connected those dots of stuttering, did it make a shape? Was it a straight line? Was it a square, an arc, anything like that that you could no, tell? It, no, no, it, it just moved in, in one single line. So I'm pretty sure that it was the same light that uh, moved, appeared, reappeared, moved, etc. It was just one one uh, single light that, that moved and, uh, and was not part of a bigger uh object or whatever it was but then again it was the middle of the night uh it if there was let's say a dark um uh, uh, machine behind it it was impossible to say or to see actually mm. as well uh but i'm pretty sure it was just one single single light yeah and it would also would it also be impossible to tell since it's at night if it was four separate lights and they were just staying in the same motion and they were turning on. So like when one turned on, the other one went dark. And then when it went away, oh, maybe only one light turned on and it was a streak. Like it, 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 I'm guessing it would have been hard to tell if it was something like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it could, could be, could be as well. Uh, then again, the fact that it made this stuttering movement and then this single light, whatever it was, the single light shot off at incredible speed, at least gave the impression that it was just one single object or light, whatever, mm. uh, that was moving all the time. But it could be that it was a, a, a light in a sequence. Then again, yeah, it was just my impression that it was the same object, uh, solid defined light, stuttering and shooting off. But then again, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and so when you and the captain see the same thing, what do you do from there? Do you Do you have communication with the controllers? Do you uh you know kind of just shrug it off do you personally record it like what what's the re reporting process that you went through for that one well nothing actually uh both of us we saw it we were really surprised uh but our first answer our first explanation was actually uh yeah well it's probably uh, related to the uh to the u.s uh naval group passing by at that moment we were only talking over the radio with the um uh, with the tower controller Mykonos, and that guy is basically only regulating the traffic on his runway. So if I tell him, "Well, I see a strange light in the sky," well, he will probably say, "Well, I'm happy for you." Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. nothing he can do about it. And let's say uh, if there would have been a, a threat to flight safety, uh, we can always write those reports. And this is uh, something that every airline nowadays has in place. It's a it's a very uh, solid safety system where all the pilots can report potential hazards that we encounter. Um, so let's say if I even even if I have a bird strike, if I if I see that a bird has has, has hit my airplane, I can write a report about it, and they they can. Uh, uh, 
uh, try to improve flight safety. But in this case, the lights we saw, uh, it was probably very high, very far away. It didn't pose any threat to us. So yeah, there, there is no way that I can or should report any, any of these sightings. So, um, yeah, most of these sightings, they, they are literally left unnoticed. Uh, many pilots, they, they, they will never re uh, report anything like that. It's only that I realized in retrospect um, that uh, some of the things that I've seen are actually kind of anomalous. Uh, but I guess many pilots, they've seen stuff, no clue what to do with it, and it's being left uh, uh, untold. How, how many seconds, again, like uh, you weren't tracking it, so there, there's no way to know the exact amount, but... If you had to give an estimate of how long it stayed in your field of vision when it started to take off that light, is it, you know, less than 0.1 seconds? Is it half a second? Like how, blink of an eye? How, how would you estimate that? Well, I think the total sighting, including the little stuttering and the shooting, uh, um, or let's say the, the acceleration or the, the, the moving away, was about three seconds. Uh, so uh, that's that's from the moment we started seeing it up to the moment it disappeared from view. But the moment it started shooting off or moving away, it was uh, yeah, 0.2 seconds. It was just yeah. it was insane. Yeah, it was so it, it, almost instantaneous. How many stutters was it before it took off? Four. Was four it of them. Four? So it was kind of yeah. like a slower, like bang, 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 and then just like after the fourth one, it just shot like in a, in a line. Yeah, it was like uh, one, two, three, four. It was gone. Just like that. Yeah, and I, of course, it didn't make the sound because I'm making this myself, but it was like... Yeah. <laughs> Any anything I've ever seen uh, before, and I've seen a lot of um, uh, thunderstorms up close or even inside. I've seen some really strange electromagnetical um, uh, things happening with the airplane windows. The moment we were flying in a storm, um, I've seen, especially in, uh, in Afghanistan, I've seen a lot of missiles and, and rockets and bullets, etc. I know I know what 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 it looks like, and this. I, I cannot even fathom an explanation for what we've seen. Mm. So uh, for a long time, it was always in the back of my mind. And it's only, uh, well, since, let's say, two years, uh, since I've been uh, reading up on the subject after the, after I saw the interviews with the Commander David Traver and uh, uh, Ryan Graves, etc., that I realized that some of the stuff that I've seen actually sounds pretty uh, pretty much like what they've seen as well. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's how my... Uh, Sightings finally uh, uh, dawned to me. Oh, sorry, that, how dawned to me that my sightings could be something, uh, something uh, anomalous. Yeah, so so much much faster than any, like you said, missile weapon that you've seen shoot or anything burning up in the atmosphere that could be identified as a meteor or anything like that. Just that yeah. that motion that it made just put those other things to shame. It was just so much faster than what yeah, you've seen. Yeah, I've seen so many shooting stars, and they pretty much always move with the same speed. Um, I've seen some rocket debris burning up in the atmosphere, which is going relatively slow. It's about the same speed as the ISS or satellites you sometimes see in the sky. And I've seen the ISS, I've seen satellites, etc. I've seen them millions of times. They always move in the same speed because this, the orbital speed around the planet is uh, a function of the distance uh, towards the Earth. So let's say everything in low Earth orbit between 350 and let's say 600 kilometers altitude, which is roughly the, the, the size that the ISS is, is moving and all the satellites, uh, you can just uh, see them moving all in the, same, in the same speed. And in this case, the acceleration that that, that object that moved so fast, it, it didn't look anything like a meteor or the ISS or satellites or, or anything. 
anything. Just incredible. Is there any communication that you could have with the military where you could call someone and say, hey, I'm not asking you to declassify any information, but I see you've closed off the airspace. We just saw this. Can you tell me, you know, should I worry about this or should I not? And then the guy in the other line could just be like, don't worry about it. And you'd be like, okay, it's a military thing. Or can you not uh, pick up the phone and, and do something like that, make that call? Interesting. Uh, first of all, I wouldn't I would know who to call. Uh, because let's say in this case, you have a, a, a U.S. Uh, a naval carrier uh, uh, going by. So that should be the American military. And I'm flying over Greece. So uh, I'm really doubtful if I could call the Greek uh, uh military and i'm really doubtful if the americans will ever admit to a random dutch guy uh, that they have some classified high-tech stuff flying around so i think that's, sure. that's quite uh, likely uh, but it's interesting because actually the the fourth sighting and I'm, I'm not sure if you're ready for the fourth sighting already yeah I yeah did. yeah, let, yeah let's do that by the way do you mind if we take a short break because i have to close one of the curtains before the light is falling directly on the camera so uh, of course i, I don't want yeah, to yeah, no. you completely <laughs> yeah no problem Okay, I'll, I'll be back in uh, in a minute. Yeah, so uh, uh, talking about the military, that's an interesting one because I think many times uh, when pilots see lights or objects moving in the sky, uh, it could be military related, maybe even high tech, uh, super uh, secret uh, tech. But I'm pretty sure that a lot of sightings from UAP could be um, mundane military projects. Uh, but then again, as I said, who to contact? And uh, then again, why why would the military even even disclose to some random pilots uh, that they are actually playing around in the airspace with uh, incredible machinery? So, yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to say I just want to say one quick thing before we get into the the fourth sighting. You know, I, I've been going through more and more accounts and thinking more and more about UAP and the connection with the military up until the last you know, 40, 50 years or so, we are so used to going through history as a planet, as a connection of nations, making technological advancements at relatively the same speed. There there are obviously isolated cases of, of people being uh, apart from mainstream society, and so therefore they don't get the same technological advancements. But for, for the most part, there's a lot of the globe that will make certain advancements at around relatively the same time, whether it's during that century or, you know, during the same decade with things like um, Internet or farming, whatever it is. And now we live in a time where there's so much military secrecy and so much divide between nations and so many high level people that are smart enough to create new technologies that aren't communicating with each other. And I, and I used to think that it would be impossible for another nation to have something so high level, especially coming from the U.S. My ego is already big enough where I'm like, we're the number one country in the world. No one can fucking make something that's better than <laughs> anything ever built in the United States. Like if there was, we'd know about it. Um, but like just like having that level of secrecy and all these barriers and and just having people up the chain of command where you have a, a very small amount of individuals that are in control of essentially the superhuman technology with AI, uh, with with propulsion, with all of these things that would probably blow our minds if we went in a room and someone demonstrated it. I, I don't think it's that far beyond the realm of, of a, a possibility where 
there may be a country out there that has just cracked the code maybe a decade or two before the rest of the world has. And because we don't live in a world where those sort of secrets are encouraged and we're not, you know, we're not naturally coming across technological innovations and, and sailing across the world and being like, look what I can do. Like, let's trade things like you, you, you figure out a secret and you keep it from the other countries. I am. I'm also open to that possibility. So I thought that that would be a good thing to say that you can't really rule any sort of uh, military or high level technologically advanced source of a, you know, even a private company that's hired contractors that work in that sort of space that just aren't willing to share anything with anyone. Because, again, we live in a world that's that's shrouded in technological secrecy. Definitely. Uh, The only the only issue uh, that comes to mind because I've, I've been contemplating about these things as well. The only issue I can find with, with, with this, let's say, solution to the UAP phenomena or the things that I've seen is that these sightings and pretty similar sightings of, of moving lights and, and incredibly ex- uh, fast moving, accelerating lights uh, are being given already since the Second World War. It started with these Foo Fighters, where a lot of files are still being uh, held classified, actually, about what pilots seen and, and sometimes interacted with uh, uh, all over the world, not just the European theater, but also over the Pacific. And um, already since the 40s, 50s, these lights, these incredibly fast-moving, accelerating and, 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 and uh, bizarre phenomena in the sky uh, have been relatively consistently seen and observed since... Well, let's say uh, 80 years ago and if let's say if if the us or any other nation would have um, invented some sort of technology or or maybe even materials that could withstand that kind of acceleration or that could actually exhibit those kind of um, things that we've seen right now it's it could not have been kept secret for for 80 years almost 100 years now uh, and it's it's it, it would probably have um uh it been implemented in 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 different uh fields in society as well so whatever it is it's 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 showing pretty much the same bizarre uh movements and 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 um characteristics for for as i said you know almost 100 years so that pretty much excludes uh, a single country in the world to to have developed that kind of technology and just play around with it and and even if they did because i i, I agree with you it's uh uh, a lot of these sightings can probably be, be explained with some military toys and military hardware. Um, why would they exhibit it in such a public space like uh, a European uh, airspace where I've seen these things or, or uh, for example, the Phoenix lights where, the, where tens of thousands of people have seen these, these huge ships or things passing by? Um, it do- doesn't make any sense, let's say, if there's a, another nation besides the US, let's say China or, or the Soviet Union, why... Would they exhibit those those high tech uh, fancy toys in in front of the entire Western world? It it d- doesn't make much sense. But then again, um, I could be missing a few points here as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's a that's a great point that these sightings have been going on since at least the 40s and 50s. So it's you know it's almost impossible that a country would have been keeping that high level of technology secret for that long. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it seems like such a dumb thing to do to test out technology in a public space. But then again, you you do have high level weapons testing out in the open 
also it, it's well known that other countries there are multiple countries that have the ability to test out nuclear weapons or you know whatever there is today i'm i'm not sure like what the most advanced uh most destructive weapon is but like th- there are these very public testings all the time and and people aren't worried about covering up but it, but if you have a technology that no one else has it would be pretty stupid to test it out in front of the rest of the world where people can see it and make reports and analyze it and, and start to break it down technologically. Uh, I mean, unless the leader of that, if the leader of that country was like, you know, trolling, that's the only, the only thing I could think of. Like if they just wanted to like stunt on other world leaders and be like, we have this, like you're probably going to think it's, uh, you, you don't even know what the source is because you're not even close to that. But that, again, that's just a, you know, stupid theory. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about it as well. Uh, and then again, if you have this technology that's so extremely advanced and, and so far ahead of your uh, your rival, uh, yeah, teasing would be part of the uh, the geopolitical game. But then again, why would you inspire them to maybe look for new uh, new physics or or new ways of propulsion? Uh, let's say if it was the Soviet Union or maybe even North Korea, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you have this this ultimately advanced technology, why would you tease the Americans? With it, because you know that there's the 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 the, uh, the budget for coming up with, with new materials and weapons in the U.S. is uh, is far exceeding any other country. So why would you even tease tease them to to come up with new uh, yeah new toys? I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, uh, it, it, it yeah, it's 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 yeah. The best me. plan of attack the the yeah. best plan of attack is surprise. So yeah, but, uh, yeah, it, it wouldn't really make sense to to stunt out in the open like that. Um, I, I don't want to to sidetrack us too much with my with my theoretical tangent, so I'll I'll let you go into the the fourth UAP sighting. Yeah, yeah, that's how we started with the military stuff because the fourth sighting uh, I actually did call the military air traffic controller, but I will first give you the background of the fourth time. Uh, this was uh, back in 2010. I was flying the 737 uh, as a co-pilot, and we were flying in the evening, late evening, from Amsterdam to the net in the Netherlands to the southern part of Spain. Um, and we were just the sun had already set, and you could still see the horizon and some clouds below. And uh, basically, the whole sky was turning from yellow to orange to to dark blue. And uh, there was not much cloud activity. There was some lower clouds far below. And we were crossing into Spanish airspace over the Pyrenees, and we still had roughly 55 minutes or one hour of flight to go. And my colleague, a former military uh, uh, pilot, uh, a very experienced, really down-to-earth guy, he's asking me if I see the same object straight ahead and what I think it is. So I don't know what I was doing. I was probably doing the flight plan or a fuel check. And I look out, and straight ahead, really straight ahead of our airplane, I see a little dot. Uh, It was like, it's very... It's very hard to say uh, what it looked like or how far it was, but it was just a, a solid object backlit, which was extremely far far away and extremely high. It was, let's say, uh, the size, uh, sorry, the shape of a, of a cigar or, or, or uh, yeah, let's say cigar shaped. And I was looking at it and I realized it was really weird because uh, we were on a direct course. Uh, after entering Spain, uh, the air traffic controller cleared us on a direct course all the way to the runway of Malaga. So that means we left the airways and there was no other traffic uh, basically around us. On top of that, we were flying very high. We were flying at 41,000 feet, which is uh, much higher than most commercial mm. airplanes are flying. Um, 
And whatever it was, it was much higher than we were flying. Um, an estimated, uh, let's say, 60, 70, 80,000 feet, which doesn't make any right. sense because there's hardly any traffic in the world that can fly that high, let alone um, uh, yeah, large, large commercial airplanes. So we were really wondering what we were looking at. And it states ahead of us, exactly ahead of us, completely stationary. So meaning it didn't, me it didn't move relative to our airplane. It didn't move uh, vertically. It didn't change shape. So we were flying uh, close to the speed of sound all the way to the south. Whatever it was, it didn't get bigger or smaller. And that really made us wonder what it was. So first, the first action was uh, calling the air traffic controller, the Madrid air traffic controller. He's basically uh, taking care of the upper airspace in Spain. And he was really surprised. He said, no, there's, there's absolutely no traffic, uh, known traffic uh, ahead of you guys. So what, what do you see? So I told him, well, there's something flying ahead of us. Uh, it looks quite, quite big. And we were just wondering what it was because out of curiosity. And about two minutes later, he comes back to me over the radio. He says, uh, um, uh, military air traffic control wants to know about your sighting as well. Can you please contact them on this and this frequency? So I tuned in the other frequency and I was talking directly with the military air traffic control, Spanish military air traffic controller. Uh, and this guy was really interested. He wanted to hear everything that we saw. And he also confirmed that they didn't have anything, no known traffic whatsoever over Spain on their radar. A military air traffic control, they have a, a primary radar, which is basically sending out radar signals and showing everything solid in the airspace, contrary to commercial uh, radars. But he said, no, there's no known traffic ahead of you. And there's no weather balloons, because apparently they track weather uh, balloon activity as well. And uh, yeah, he, 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 he was really curious to, to see what we saw. So that was really uh, interesting to see. And then after about 55 mi minutes of flying, we were finally getting close to Malaga, all the way to the south of Spain. And uh, we made a left turn and we descended into the clouds. And all the time, I still saw the same object uh, in the same geographical position. And it must have been by that time over Africa, somewhere over Africa. And it didn't change uh, size, shape or whatsoever. And it just stayed there in the sky. And it was the most curious thing I've ever seen. And this is the first time, also the only time, unfortunately, I was able to uh, to take a picture of it. And uh, I'm, I'm the first to admit it's a completely underwhelming picture because basically you see a sky with a, with a really small dot. Uh, but in the context of us seeing it for over an hour and the fact that we were flying already very high and it must have been extremely high in the atmosphere, um, it makes it strange, absolutely strange. What was the the tone of the military guy that you were speaking to during this conversation? Was he surprised, overwhelmed? Was he nonchalant? What did it feel like talking to him? Uh, or it her, sounded like he it was. was. It was a him. It, it was. He sounded very proactive, very curious, and very businesslike. Uh, he didn't ridicule anything. Uh, he didn't laugh about it. Uh, but he was. He was. Uh, uh, absolutely curious to, to to find out what we were seeing, and uh, it was 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 uh, yeah professional. Um, actually, in the last last couple of years, I um, I've seen some other things burning up in the atmosphere as well, and I've called air traffic control to ask if something was was happening. Later on, we found out it was just very mundane, something very uh, very uh, uh, simple that was uh, that was burning up, but. The few times that I've called air traffic control and asked them if there was any military activity, they just shrugged it off. They were completely uh, uninterested. And that's the biggest thing in retrospect that surprised me with the uh, uh, with the object over Spain. That, uh, both the civil and the military air traffic controller were uh, really professional and they, 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 they didn't ridicule it. They, they believed us and they just wanted to know what we've uh, uh, been seeing. So 
it wasn't changing shape. It stayed that cigar shape the whole time you saw it for about the hour. Wasn't seemingly changing elevation, staying pretty much at the same spot. Is there a possibility that it could have been so far away that maybe it wasn't tracking you, but you just weren't getting close enough to change the shape of it? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, exactly. It could be two things. It was either um, ahead of us at a fixed distance, just constantly moving together with us, basically tracking us. Uh, that could have explained the fact that it didn't change shape or size. Um, but it seems very unlikely because we were on a direct course. And uh, yeah, besides that, it doesn't make any sense if something just stays ahead of us for, for over an hour. Or the second option is, is that it was so far away so incredibly far away that the relative uh, change in distance from us and, and the object was just uh, ne- negligible. Then again, if it was the second option, if it was uh, an object that was extremely far away, it must have been both huge. I mean, we're talking about uh, massive size and extremely high. Uh, we're talking about really the upper upper uh, edges of the atmosphere, mm. which is something that, that that's weird. But then again, uh, not, 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 nothing really makes sense. I just don't know what it, what it could have been. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm just completely clueless about, uh, about anything. Yeah. Whatever the source of it is, if something is staying the same shape, size, and altitude for a long period of time, and let's assume it's not the further away option where it's, you know, it's it's maintaining the same exact distance between itself and the the plane. Could you like? Is that an uh, something that could happen? incidentally or is that indicative of a system that has tracking capabilities like whatever the source of it is like something that could stay on a target exactly for one hour straight well it's uh, yeah, I, I guess it could be um especially since a lot of uh, airplanes are flying across tracks or or uh, airways if you know the airways uh, you can just follow the same airway and especially um if you analyze a lot of traffic over time, you could basically see what kind of uh, routes uh, are normally being flown by airplanes. Um, so in that case, you could track something, maybe even a drone or something could, could basically track it. Uh, this case, we were flying in a direct route. So that was a pretty random route. That, that's, that's, um, that's not a known route. And then again, uh, if you track something, it would make more sense to me to fly behind it. Um, and the altitude doesn't really make any sense. You know, I, I guess if it would have been something, let's say a drone or, or anything else that would that would track us, that was that would fly together with us in in, in the same distance or uh, sorry, same uh, um, bearing, um, it wouldn't fly that high. I, I would I would expect something to fly at the same altitude or lower. Uh, but then again, nothing really makes sense on what we saw there. So um, I I've, I've no clue. It uh, it could be, it could be. Yeah, I I know military pilots obviously have a very advanced tracking system to work with. What what are the type of systems or equipment that you have in the plane that would be able to track objects that are outside of the plane? Um, Well, first of all, we talked about this TCAS system before. This is just TCAS. uh, yeah, this is this, this traffic collision avoidance system that every big airliner uh, has. And we see on our navigation display all the traffic around us. And this goes up to a range of around uh, 80 nautical miles, A0. So that's around uh, uh, 150 kilometers all around us. We can basically see all the commercial traffic, sometimes even military traffic, uh, within, a, within a, 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 an altitude block. 
in this case, nothing showed up on TCAS. So whatever it was, it was not carrying a transponder and it's, uh, it was not flying within, let's say, 80 miles. Um, so it's kind of inconclusive. And the other, the other stuff that we have on board is a weather radar. And um, it's basically continuously sending out uh, radar signals, bouncing off hopefully uh, clouds and, and rain. Uh, but it's optimized for sensing weather. So sometimes if you're really uh, lucky, the weather radar can pick up some other traffic as well. You can see a big uh, reflection on the navigation display coinciding with the TCAS signal. Then you realize that the radar is just uh, picking up the, uh, the, the signals that mm. are bouncing off the, the other airplane. But um, there's no guarantee that the radar signals will bounce off because the weather radar, as I said, it's, uh, it's made for detecting uh, weather. So as commercial traffic, we have no way of, of tracking uh, uh, other objects. I guess military mm. uh, airplanes like uh, fighter jets, etc., they probably have more sophisticated uh, tracking systems to lock on, etc. But if I'm not mistaken... Uh, all of those tracking systems are facing forward, uh, including uh, forward-looking infrared um, and uh, radar, you name it, uh, maybe even visual uh, acquisition uh, apparatus. But it's all facing forward, or let's say in a, in a, in a range of about 180 degrees uh, around, but not facing backwards. So, yeah, I don't know. You, yeah. it, it may, maybe it's best to ask a military pilot these kind of details, whereas I've... Uh, I've no, I, 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 I don't think it was tracking us, but then again, I, I don't know. Yeah. I see, so I see on your website, you have the fourth sighting in Spain labeled under investigation. Are, are you able to talk about the, the progress of that investigation and exactly what about the, the photo that you took is being investigated? Which, by the way, I'm going to link it in the, the podcast description and I'll also throw it up on the screen when we're, you know, when we just spoke about it, so people will have an idea. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and uh, as I said before, you know, it's it's completely underwhelming the picture. So a lot of people are criticizing me for taking a blurry picture, but uh, you know, it's it's not so much about the picture; it's about the whole context of, of seeing something. So this is a bit of a uh, uh, <laughs> a warning for the people who, who hope to see a UFO. Um, yeah, but I sent in the picture to uh, Ipaco, which is a French. Uh, organization uh all actually i took two pictures uh, within two minutes or so which are completely identical but at least they can uh, analyze both of the pictures and they already concluded at least that the pictures are genuine they're, they're not uh, altered or photoshopped or uh, 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 uh tricked with in any possible way um so far um that there's they're very busy and i think they have a lot of pictures they're working on right now but the last i heard is that they confirmed um well as i said first of all it's a genuine photo and second of all there seems to be no um visible form of propulsion or or uh uh engines etc it just seems to be a solid object and um yeah, so far it's not weather related as well. That's also what they confirmed, and they're going to uh, to try and find the satellite pictures of the uh, the Spanish Peninsula with all the clouds, so they can see if it's possibly weather related. But they basically already said no, it's it's not a cloud, it's not something um, something anything uh, that is readily explainable. So I'm just waiting for the final analysis. And by the way, if if someone or a professional organization also wants to analyze these images, I'm absolutely open for that because I think it's important to have uh, uh, as many specialists and, and, and analysis uh, yeah. Um, yeah, being done on, on such, uh, such such photos. I'm sure you, you thought about this, but like, w would it be possible to rig a camera on the outside of a plane to take photos every few seconds 
on a on a commercial flight or something without jeopardizing the the safety of the passengers and the the safety of the vehicle just to have something in front and behind totally for uh observational purposes and just to have something on the plane to record the flights and then once you're done with it you can just wipe it and say you know there's nothing there and just you know keep refilling it with each flight is that is that a possibility or would an airline never go for that well, it's, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a practical possibility. I mean, you could actually uh, get a GoPro and put it in the uh, in the window in the cockpit, so it's uh, it doesn't interfere with the with the flight, etc. Uh, many airlines, like the uh, the big airlines like the A three eighty, etc., they have these uh, cameras for entertainment purposes, so people can look uh, uh, in their in flight entertainment system to what the what uh, what's happening in front of the airplane or behind the airplane. So technically, it's possible. Um, but uh, airlines, they don't want to spend any money if they don't have to spend it. So uh, what would be the, the risk and benefits uh, for an airline? In this case, I think a camera, it would cost a lot of money. It would require extra maintenance, certification by the uh, uh, manufacturer, etc. And this is costing a lot of money. Um, yeah, for what? Uh, as I said, you know, there's only maybe 30% of the pilots who once or twice saw something during their entire career. Um, is it justifiable to spend millions on every airplane just to install a camera? I don't. I don't think you will convince any any airline to 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 do so. Uh, but then again, you know, pilots like me, and more and more pilots are are, are carrying a GoPro with them or other uh, other equipment. Um, that might increase the chance of, uh, of of capturing a UAP. But I think it's it's quite unlikely that that airlines will just randomly install cameras and uh, and, and spend a lot of money. Yeah. Well, I mean, if a CEO of major airline is listening to this. If you charged me five extra dollars on a ticket and it said UAP research and discovery expenses, <laughs> I would have no problem with that. I, I And I suspect that there are a ton of other people that, you know, if you uh, airline fees are obviously already pretty high. If, if you added on an extra few bucks to and and you said you know this is what it's for in the receipt you know whatever prints out the the confirmation that you get i'd be like that's pretty fucking cool like whatever you know go for it yeah <laughs> well who knows you can propose it yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, so w- what what sparked you wanting to come forward with your uap sightings um, well, as I said, the first time I, I started to take the, the subject serious was after I read the, the New York Times article in 2017. Um, but it didn't really trigger anything in me. It was just interesting and it was uh, uh, yeah, fascinating. And afterwards, I, I think I only saw the interview with Commander David Traver. He, he's giving a couple of interviews and uh, uh, his colleagues, um, Ryan Dittrich, I think, and uh, later on, Ryan Graves. I only saw those interviews in 2020, which was uh, actually kind of late. I came, I came to the party quite late. But it was only then that I realized that what they've been seeing uh, was genuine and they, they came across as, 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 uh, as trustworthy. And it's also at that moment I realized that the four sightings we just discussed uh, that I've seen were uh, quite interesting in that light. And I realized that there might be happening more in the skies than we realize. As I said before, with the light over Greece, um, we first thought it was it must have been something military, which is always the go-to answer for something we cannot explain. Uh, but now these military pilots were coming forward, and that means that even the military pilots are sometimes uh, wondering what they see in the sky. So 
after that uh, interview, I started reading up more about the uh, the UAP topic and UFOs, basically to uh, to debunk it. Because I thought, you know what, this should be something so simple, and I can easily debunk it. Especially with my experience as a pilot, I can I can rule out what it is and what it isn't. And it's only then that um, I stumbled upon uh, many sightings that were quite similar to mine, and I. Uh, how should I put it? I, I realize more and more that the stigma around this whole topic is just so incredibly strong. It requires a couple of individuals to come forward with their sightings and and basically approach the whole topic in a down-to-earth way. Just just get rid of the stigma. And the moment that the stigma is disappearing, I'm pretty sure that more and more pilots, but maybe also uh, military personnel, air traffic controllers, etc., will come forward with their own experiences but someone has to has to open up that uh, that gate um and i think it was an interview with uh, mr louis elizondo i think it was with uh, kurt mongol from uh, theories of everything and i believe uh, mr elizondo said a couple of times that he was hoping that not just military pilots would come forward but also civilian pilots etc and that's the moment I realized that my sightings might actually be very important. And I don't care what it was, what I've seen. It might be something military or maybe something very mundane that we can explain tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. That's fine by me. But at least I can I can come forward with my sightings and uh, just just step by step get rid of the stigma. So, um, yeah, I was really wondering what, what channel or what... what uh, uh, what way of discussing this topic would uh, would work best? And in the end, I got in touch with uh, Vinny Adams from Disclosure Team, and I chatted to, uh, with him a couple of times. Uh, and I said, you know, I've seen these and these things. Would it be interesting for you to to uh, to do an interview? Because uh, yeah, I'm, as I said, you know, my my picture of Spain of this Spanish object is completely underwhelming, and the rest is only anecdotal. So I have no clue if it's if it's uh, if it's of any use. And basically, we 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 discussed it, and he said, yeah, please do because it shows that um, even if it's just anecdotal evidence, it's still important to to open up about the topic. So that's how we uh, how we started. And after the interview with uh, uh, disclosure team, it just uh, opened up the floodgates, and I received so many emails. And as I said before. Uh, so many pilots, uh, both direct colleagues of mine and people I've, I've never met before, they approach me with their own sightings. Some of them, which are really, really impressive. They're talking about physical objects, just sometimes flying close to the cockpit or uh, next to the airplane. Uh, so many, so many pilots came forward with their own experiences to me, and it shows that uh, uh, a lot of stuff is is happening and being observed. But uh, we have to get rid of the stigma. Long story short. Yeah. So, yeah, I have nothing left to lose. Uh, you know, I, I'm not making things up. I don't have any security clearances. Uh, I just do my job. And in the past, I've seen some stuff I cannot explain. So that's it. Yeah, I, I had a similar path in terms of UAP interest. I've, I, I've never had a, a personal sighting. Obviously, I'm not a pilot. I don't have those sort of credentials. But like seeing the, the 2017 article in, in the New York Times, where the the Pentagon admitted to funding a program to investigate UAPs, they published the the video officially of the gimbal that had been out there. I saw it and it stayed in the back of my mind, but I didn't dive into it with any sort of uh, open curiosity. And then when I saw guys like David Fravor, a highly trained military pilot, Ryan Graves going on Joe Rogan podcast, uh, Lex Friedman, and having these highly trained personnel dispassionately discuss logical uh, or not logical interactions, but like in a logical way, this is what I saw. This is 
what I'm trained to observe. These are the things that lie outside the box of what I consider explainable. And here's why. Whatever the the source is, there, there, there wasn't an air of quackery about it like so many conversations in the, the UAP UFO space where there's, you know, there's so much uh, mixing of egos and wanting for attention and wanting to top stories and wanting to, uh, you know, contribute to the experience and, and a lot of people that, you know, are coming at it out of bad faith or don't have the best mental capacity or just, you know, it, there's a lot of mixing up in it. But then once I saw these podcasts start to come out with, with military pilots and, um, and, and, and I also listened to and watched the conversation that you had with Ryan Graves on his podcast, which was, which was a, an exceptional podcast. I encourage people to check that out as well. Um, that changed the way that I thought about it where I go, okay, you have to have a certain level of filter of intelligence, of mental capacity, of, uh, you know, reflex it, like physical capabilities in order to even get in the seat of an airplane. And if multiple people are experiencing similar things that have these capacities, then it is something to me that seems more than worth exploring just to figure out exactly what it is because it could be a a safety hazard for public health it could be a safety hazard for aviation uh passengers pilots people who are exploring the sky like you, you if you don't know what it is the the unknown is the scariest thing so why not try to figure out the source of these things and, and work together and collaborate and open the conversation so and it, by no means am i am i comparing what i've experience to to what you've experienced because there really is no comparison but just in terms of the the article coming out and then the seeing the podcast i kind of had a similar light bulb moment of oh shit like these guys are talking about it i should probably pay more attention to this and and dive into this i'm really happy to hear that because i think uh, that's also so important why um uh, for example, pilots or professionals are coming forward. It's not that we are um, extra trustworthy because I happen to be a pilot. It's not that military pilots are, by definition, always truthful. But the point is, uh, what they call credible observers, is that it's coming from people who are trained to look out of their window, and in case of military pilots, to, to use their, their tracking equipment like radar, etc., uh, that are trained to recognize airplanes at a distance. And for me, as a commercial pilot, I'm trained to look out of my window uh, to identify potential hazards, weather-wise, uh, traffic-wise, etc., and I have this, let's say, built-in filter, especially with experience, to know when something is off outside. And this is making our observations, especially the UAP observations, uh, interesting because we we have filtered out already a lot of uh, uh, easy misidentifications. Let's say if someone who is really into UAPs is looking up in the sky, I can imagine that there's quite some stuff happening up there that could be identified as a UAP. Nowadays, we know maybe there's some meteors, there's maybe Starlink passing by, etc. And when these reports are coming from credible observers, and I'm also talking about, let's say, military personnel, naval personnel, etc. We haven't heard too much of those stories yet, but these people, they have a lot of experience in sightings as well. 
I think, uh, it adds weight to the discussion and it adds weight to the, um, yeah, as I said before, getting rid of the stigma. And that's, uh, that's, you can only do that if you have people who know what they're doing, who are not, uh, there for the fame or making, making stuff up. Um, the moment we come forward with our sightings and say, well, I have this and this many thousands of flying hours and I've seen this, I have no clue what it could be especially coming from these military uh, pilots like Ryan Graves, etc. I think it's a wake-up call that we have to take it more serious. Yeah, and it, it means nothing coming from someone like me when I when I look out the window or I look up in the sky and I see something I can't identify because I have zero skill set and foundation to be able to I make an identification on, on what it could be. And again, when you, when you have people like yourself and, and other pilots that have experienced thousands of hours of flying through the sky and looking at and identifying things and you have a very small amount of things that are unexplainable that is more and more more than worth paying attention to and, and investigating then, then then again i could be wrong as well i mean pilots uh, military observers they could be uh, misidentifying stuff as well so it's not that that if i see something that is immediately something uh, extraterrestrial or or supernatural etc i could be completely uh, uh, misinterpreting things as well and then again also for you you might actually be looking up in the sky and see something that's genuinely unknown so it doesn't it doesn't make your sighting or observation uh, any less valuable but i think especially in the process of of getting rid of the stigma uh, we need to have people who are down to earth but intended down to earth and uh, approaching the, the topic um as open as possible uh, mm-hmm. um yeah i think i think i think that's the uh, the main catch why uh let's say pilots and military aviators are uh are, are coming forward now yeah so since you've come forward about your uap sightings have you have you had any surprising or meaningfully impactful interactions that have happened since you know conversations that you weren't expecting people reaching out to you where you're like holy shit you know i i I never thought this person would reach out anything like that that you can talk about yeah definitely i've I've received some some private emails and messages from uh uh people who are still flying now as pilots or used to be pilots with their own sightings and really uh, touching accounts because some people they're they're finally for the first time in their lives able to share what they've seen and experienced, uh, which is um, um, which is very very touching in a way because it shows that there's uh, it's but some people even even some some emotional trauma behind it because they they know what they've seen but they can never talk about it openly so that was really interesting. Um, some of my own colleagues, they've, they've come forward with their own sightings. Uh, sometimes after only a couple of flights, we were flying maybe uh, three, four days in a row. And only on the last day, uh, this colleague is opening up about what he's seen because he was so reluctant to talk about it. And only after he realized that uh, I was not going to make fun of him, he, he basically opened up about it. That was really interesting. Um, I've also received some extremely interesting emails from uh, uh, journalists and uh, authors who are now busy um, uh, writing their books and also approaching the topic very seriously, and that's uh, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. I hardly I hardly received any ridicule. Um, at the, the, the few people who have uh, been laughing at it or maybe uh, ridiculizing it uh, have been the people who are not aviators who are not working in aviation and none of my uh, colleagues have ever laughed about it or make, made a joke about it and i think that's uh, that's very surprising because i was i was actually ready to take a lot of flack from, from my colleagues for uh, for coming forward with it absolutely nothing like it and a lot of colleagues there uh, 
more open-minded than I initially thought. That's 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 a very interesting to see as well. Yeah, and especially for your colleagues who have seen similar things, it's probably a relief that someone else is talking about it because your mind can go to some dark places if you have an experience and you hold it in and you're not sure if you can talk about it. So having people in the space that are open, I'm sure has, has you know provided a release valve for a lot of pilots to come out and share their experiences without the the fear of being ridiculed or if if they are ridiculed it's you know it's it's a small amount of people because the 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 internet is vast and so the the amount of interactions that you're going to have uh with the good versus the bad almost always the, the the good outweighs the bad not that the 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 harmful interactions don't leave an impact, but there, there's a lot of people out there who are open to curiosity and open to seeing evidence and, and finding out the, the truth behind these sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. And definitely. And it's, it's funny because the, the couple of times that people were uh, making fun of the subjects, it was the time so when, that, when they were asking me, oh, so do you believe in UFOs? And I'm, I'm not believing in anything. And I don't even like the term UFO, by the way. And I said, no, I don't believe in, in, in UFOs. I've just seen something during my career, 20-year career as a pilot, that I cannot explain. And I just want to want to be able to explain it. And if we can do that by talking about this, the, the, the topic, then uh, by all means. But uh, it's very interesting to see that a lot of people are, are putting labels on it. If you talk about UAP, you're a believer. Well, I... I, I, th- I think it's an easy way to to uh, to close down the subjects and not having to think about it. Yeah, the, 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 there's a way to have conversations and just talk about what you've seen without making extrapolations on what the source definitely is or not is. You can just talk openly about it, and you know, if you don't know, you don't know. And if someday we find out, then that's great too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And as I said, as I said before. Even if we found out that it's a new kind of weather phenomena, or it's like a, uh, a new uh, military missile, or whatever, I, I I highly doubt it. But even if that's the case, then that's that's fine by me. I mean, uh, I, I just want to know if it's a safety issue for my flights, and if not, then uh, I'm happy with any explanation. Yeah. So so as we start to end off, I wanted to read an excerpt from an article that Ryan Graves wrote, another pilot in Politico a few weeks ago. I believe it was published at the end of February. And it's called, We Have a Real UFO Problem and It's Not Balloons. And this is around the time when the, the Chinese spy balloon was was going around. And, you know, that was every other article in the news. And Ryan Graves writes, Above all, we need to listen to pilots. Military and civilian pilots provide critical firsthand insights into advanced UAP. Right now, the stigma attached to reporting UAP is still too strong. Since I came forward about UAP in 2019, only one other pilot from my squadron has gone public. Commercial pilots also face significant risks to their careers for doing so. New rules are needed to require civilian pilots to report UAP, protect uh, protect the pilots from retribution, and a process must be established for investigating their reports. Derision or denial over the unknown is unacceptable. This is a time for curiosity. If the phenomena I witness with my own eyes turns out to be foreign drones, they pose an urgent threat to national security and airspace safety. If they are something else, it must be a scientific priority to find out. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I, I think that kind of sums up the 
the the attitude that you and Ryan Graves and other pilots seem to share is that I'm seeing this stuff. It, it's not seeming to go away. It would probably be good to be curious about it and actively create programs and procedures to report these to to acquire more information, whatever it is. I completely agree. And I'm very happy also that, uh, that Ryan Grace is taking this so serious. That's also why I participated in this podcast. Uh, interestingly enough, I've been approached and I'm working out together with a company called Enigma Labs. And they are um, a completely independent company. And they are going to set up an, uh, an app which basically can be available for, for anyone, but especially focused on, on, on pilots, uh, where they can uh, make their reportings. And with, uh, uh, with all these reports, they're going to uh, basically uh, create a database with sightings. And um, they try to um, approach the whole topic as objective as possible, just to gather data. We have to get rid of the stigma. We have basically every pilot should or could be equipped with, with such an app on their iPad or, or, or whatever uh, phone. And uh, I think that's one really big step on just gathering data. And the moment we have enough data, together with getting rid of the stigma, because it's a few different processes that go hand in hand, um, we can approach the topic uh, in a much more sensible way. And I like, like Ryan Graves said, you know, if it if it happens to be uh, foreign drones, I mean, uh, okay, that that's that's an acute. Uh, uh, safety issue but even if it's something else we have to investigate it and the only thing uh, that we can do is just open up about it and analyze it collect data so uh, yeah in that sense i'm happy to see that ryan graves is, is so active with this companies like enigma labs are, are starting up and um, yeah well let's see where the future is going because since 2020 a lot of things have happened and it seems to mm. be uh, a topic that's uh, that's being taken serious first of all and it's being uh uh yeah, uh, approached uh, openly by by a lot of individuals and and YouTubers like yourself, for example. And I think that's uh, that, that yeah, that's that's a wonderful uh, development. Where's the best place for people to keep up with your work, with the photography, blog posts, UAP reports? Where's the best place for people to follow for that? Uh, I think Instagram would be the best uh, portal. I'm very active on Instagram. Uh, JPC Van Heist, even, even if you look me up just uh, phonetically, you'll probably see it as the first suggestion. Uh, my website as well, and my website, uh, I post some blogs every now and then, um, some articles and a lot of pictures, etc. It's also my, uh, uh, yeah, my, uh, uh, how do you say this? My, my resume is on there. So if people want to know more about me, um, yeah, that's, that, those are the best ways. And uh, for the latest updates, uh, I mostly post on, on Facebook and Instagram. So uh, I can easily be found there. They have this little blue tick. So even if you misspell my Dutch name, you, uh, <laughs> you, could, you can probably find me there. Yeah, I just, I just want to say I, I encourage people to go check out the, the website. And for me personally, the photography, I was making notes over the past couple of days on the podcast and blog posts and, and going through past interviews to brainstorm topics and questions. And, and every time I came back to your photography, I get sidetracked for at least 30 minutes just staring <laughs> at photos, like not not just the, the UAP photos, but just just anything, the the horizon, seeing the curvature of the earth, the topography, it, it's incredible work. And that on its own is worthy of a podcast, just the beauty of your photography. So I, I appreciate what you do. And I, I appreciate your time. This, this has been an absolute blast. And I encourage people to go check out your work as well, because it will not uh, be time wasted. 
Oh, wow. Well, I really appreciate that. And uh, I put my whole soul in my photography in that sense. I uh, even got a part-time contract for flying now because I want to focus much more on my photography. And actually, photography in combination with the writing because I realize I'm turning 40 this year. I've been flying for 20 years now. Um, it's so important to create and to, 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 to share beauty. And especially nowadays in the world, it's uh, the world is becoming a dark and unpredictable place in, in, in many ways. And I try to... Um, uh, yeah, to 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 counteract that a little bit by adding some beauty uh, to the world through my camera, through my social media, whatever. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it. It's really nice to hear that uh, that is so enjoyed. Yeah, th- thank you so much, Christian. Awesome, awesome. Well, yeah. By the way, if people want to get in touch with me, uh, both uh, as I said before, both through Instagram, but also the contact page on my website, uh, it's all confidential. I, I the emails that I receive I only end up with me. So, also, if other pilots or other people want to share their experiences, uh, more than uh, happy to listen and to uh, to hear about it.